Hi everyone, it's Chris, and I'd like to tell you all about my new book at Inside the Armour Publications. The new book, Hero M. Slava, is a book all about my recent diorama, Glory to the Heroes. The book tells you everything you need to know about how I replicated four destroyed vehicles, including comprehensive information on the scratch work, the painting, the weathering, and how I completed this diorama. In addition, you can see which figures I used, how they were put together, how they were modified, and how some were sculpted and more information about the composition and how I went through several iterations before I decided on the final form of the diorama. To back this up, there's also several pages of really fantastic reference material provided by friends in Ukraine of destroyed Russian armour, including T-72s and more. Head on over to InsideTheArmor.com to find out more about this book and how you can order it, or go to your favourite hobby bookstore and ask them to order from Inside the Armour Publications. Friends, the show you're about to hear may contain coarse language, progressive attitudes about scale modeling, and in-depth discussion of technique and concept. If this is not your thing, then on your bike. Otherwise, please enjoy today's show while at the bench, on the drive to work, or while enjoying an adult beverage. My name is Chris Meddings. With me today, I have Tracy Hancock. Hello! Tracy Hancock's dogs <laughs> and Will Parson. <laughs> what's up? What's up? Uh, coming up later, we have an amazing interview with Rick Lawler, uh, the one and only propaganda and about his amazing work and some of the more controversial things he's tackled in the past. Before that, though, we got our usual mix of uh, dick jokes and bullshittery. So, guys, what have you been up to? We'll start with Tracy. Uh, as I was telling Chris while you were... Experiencing technical difficulties. No, as you were telling Will while Chris Sorry. was experiencing yes. technical difficulties. That's exactly right. <laughs> um, still working on the Panther. I have weathered everything below the waistline, so to speak. Um, hull sides, road wheels, tracks, all that good stuff. And last night I had a little bit of bench time, so I dragged out the photo gear and took some photos of the of all the components and then was assembling them and instantly started having ham fisted self-induced problems. And as I was, <laughs> as I was saying to Will, I was like, you know, there's a certain point when you should know that today's not a good bench day. <laughs> and Danger, some, Will Robinson. Yeah. And some days you do and you're like, Hey, I'm just going to stop while I'm ahead. And then other days, there's there's a stubbornness that takes hold. So I broke two of the road wheels off of their hubs and had to re-glue them. Got that finished um, and was putting the tracks on. And the idlers weren't sitting. Uh, they, they were kind of causing the tracks to cant out at the bottom. So they weren't sitting seated properly. And instead of, you know doing what a good scale modeler should do, which is gently take things apart and see where they're going wrong. I decided what it needed was a push. Mm. So I pushed it <laughs> and I smushed it 
and I broke off uh, in the process probably, I don't know, a dozen or so uh, of the guide teeth off the tracks. And uh, and I was, at that point, I was like, okay, I get it. Thanks, universe, for sending me these very subtle signals. Um, that you so ignored. I, <laughs> yeah, that I completely ignored. And, uh, and so it's still sitting there exactly like that. And... Um, I'll probably try to tackle it over the next week. Did you smush it? Smush it real good. <laughs> yeah, I did. I gave it a smush. Um, and the goal, I should say, what the the goal was to uh, to get everything, like I said, below the belt, kind of finished, so I could then bolt the the hull to the base. And then continue working on whatever I needed to work on the, the weathering of the upper side of the hull, gluing on all the numerous small bits that I've knocked off in the process. Um, I, I just kind of wanted to get it to a point where I could get it onto the base and, and mount it securely on the base so that um, I wasn't handling the vehicle as much anymore. And just keep working on it from that point on. Yep, sometimes sometimes you got to just, yep, just got to take a break. Yeah, for mm. sure. And, you know, get up this morning and I'm not mad at it. I looked at it and the weathering looks really fucking good, man. I'm like, I instantly want to start building another Panther because it looks so cool. You sure you don't want to rage spray it, leave it alone for a few years, take it to uh, SMC and win an award with it? No, 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 I don't want to rage spray it. It's, it's fine. But, there, ha you know, with, with every build, something has to go wrong. And it's usually something in the painting stage. And with this one, since the painting came off... And the chipping came off well, and like, uh, you know, everything leading up to it, no problem. Um, mm -hmm. Then, then I, I guess I've hit the stage where things are going to start to go wrong. <laughs> I hate that stage. Yeah, I'd like to avoid that stage. <laughs> yeah, you need one to go smooth. You, you. I mean, I feel like you're. Uh, what was that? What was the thing? The the rage. The rage panther. I oh, mean, this is the, a little Panzer one, yeah. That you took to SMC. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel like you need one to just go smooth from beginning to end. I'd be a fool for expecting one to go smooth from beginning to end. <laughs> right. And I am not a fool, so <laughs> yeah. I, I just realized at some point that it's there, there's going to be some shit where you're just like, okay, Mr. I like problem solving. Well, here's a fucking problem. <laughs> yeah. Let's get on that. There you go. We got you covered. Yep. Yep. something goes wrong on every model I make and I've come to the conclusion some of us just aren't the kind of modeler where it goes to plan from beginning to end it's just not not how we roll so <laughs> what have you been up to what kind of things have been going wrong well I, I'm working on a secret project secret project man uh, which I'll tell you about later because it's a commission for someone else so I can't um, say what it is publicly but part of it is it's going to be cast because it's a master and I filled it with milliput, and the milliput just fucking didn't go off. Just stayed soft <laughs> for like two days. So I had to dig it all out, and it was like half a pack of milliput. I mean, this Ooh, is a big chunk. Yeah, that's And redo good. it, and then that didn't set. But I this time I worked on a ratio of 60% hardener to um, putty. I'd, rather than doing it in the proper 50-50, which they say you should normally do. And it took two days, but it did set. So now it's set. I can move on with it. So that's my um, disaster of the week. 
But luckily it wasn't too much of a frustration because I've been finishing off laying out my new book. So I haven't actually been at the bench all week. I just left that to <coughs> go hard. And um, <laughs> I often find it's better to wait to go hard. And then uh, I, um, I I worked on the book and I've been laying that out. And it's, I think, some of the best design, book design I've ever done. I'm really pleased with it. So it's nearly finished. I've got about three pages left to do. Very cool. And have we? Do we know what this book is? Have, have I, have, we do. Yeah, I've announced it. It's the book of the project of the diorama that I did for Scale Model Challenge. So it's called uh, Hero and Slava: Glory to the Heroes. It was originally just called Hero and Slava, and then I thought, how the fuck is anyone going to Google that? So I thought I better add a subtitle in English so they can find it. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's about 72 pages and includes some amazing reference stuff which uh has not been published anywhere before direct from friends in ukraine of destroyed russian armor a lot of real close-ups and stuff like that no bodies it's you know right uh, keeping it tasteful yeah yeah no no like blood or anything but um really good like mangled metal and rust and all sorts of cool chipping and all sorts of good stuff for you to do your wrecks with and it'll be b5 format it's already for pre-sale at InsideTheArmor.com and through booksellers. So contact your favourite bookseller and ask them to order it. And uh, yeah, should be out in about three weeks. Hey, Chris, uh, for cool. those of us in the United States of America and not in the United Kingdom mm. of England, what the hell's B5 format? What, what does that equate to? It's somewhere to between... It's funny, it's an American format. It's somewhere between uh, A4 and A5. It's the common size that... Um, Japanese books are made in, which is a little bit smaller than A4. Mm. Okay. Uh, Chris Sieber's book was in that format from um, from scale aircraft modeling in Japan. Gotcha. So that sort of format. So it's a little bit smaller than A4, but that means it's cheaper to produce, but that means it's cheaper to print. So it's £14, which is one of my lowest priced books. Very cool. Up. Hopefully, the American distributor will pick it up. So please contact your US stores to ask them to order it. They'll get onto the distributor and the distributor will know then that they need to buy some off me. And you won't have to pay shipping them from the UK to the US. And one of the, I don't know all of the people who distribute, but I know um, Dave Youngquist at Last Cavalry stocks your stuff. So that's one person people can contact. The US distributor is Stevens International. So you can contact Lionheart, Lionheart Stop My Stuff. You okay. can contact, um, nice. in fact, they order direct. So get onto Rudy and uh, I'll talk to Rudy later and see if he wants to order some. But Dave Youngquist, a, a lot of places order from Stevens. I think the big distributors in the US are Stevens and um, I can't remember the other one. I don't think it's Sprue Brothers, but it's someone like that. So uh, between the two of them, they cover the whole country. So, and they, you know, all my stuff gets sent out to model stores. So go, just go to your model store, get them to get onto the distributor to order it, and that'll be there soon. The, the book covers uh, all of the scratch building, painting, everything else I did on four vehicles, plus the work I did sculpting and semi-sculpting seven figures, plus a little bit about diorama composition and some reference. Yeah, nice. So that's it. Yep, that's all I've been up to, really. Very so. cool. Very cool. What about you, Will? Well, I I don't have a lot to report on my tiny Sherman adventure. I am not a whole lot further along from where I was. I was I've been very fortunate that uh, John Murphy Spud of the gold medal winning 116th Sherman at SMC and all around a dope dude has been like coaching me like we video chatted and 
I had gotten his uh, like step-by-step for tracks off of his Facebook page. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to do exactly this. And um, I don't have the life color paints that he likes, but I have ink. And I love ink. I love these Liquitex acrylic inks. I've used them a lot. They're fantastic. And I thought, oh, these will be perfect. And his method, you know, basically is like involves five colors and he does it in layers and he does a lot of speckling with the, you know, the paintbrush and a toothpick and they look amazing. Um, And uh, I discovered a couple of things. Well, first, I was like, not only am I going to use inks, but I'm going to use my 0.5 millimeter Iwata HPTH which is a fucking paint cannon with my Mac valve because I know that I can speckle super easy and it works great. gives me a lot of control. And if I'm going to be speckling like five colors, you know, plus, you know, with my stupid lobster hands, I don't really like having to, you know, do the whole paintbrush and toothpick thing. So I'm like, I got this. (laughs) So I discovered a couple of things pretty quickly. First of all, yeah, his pictures on his, I keep forgetting, are 116 scale. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And you're working in 148. So, yes, three times smaller. And my speckles just kind of turned into, you know, everything. Splash. And I really had, it took took me a long time to sort of figure out a like a, a method, you know, to get. And I kind of got past that. But what I didn't get past until about 200 layers later is that these Liquitex acrylic inks, one of the things that's very powerful about them is that there is their translucency. And so you can really, like if you airbrush them, you can really sneak up on a tone. <laughs> but yeah, that didn't really work because I just could not like they'd look great when they were wet I'd be like oh that's a really great dirt tone it looks exactly like I want it to oh it's drying it's not there anymore (laughs) I just so I just was struggling and I and I and I like kept reducing the amount that I was reducing them by until I got to where it was almost pure like neat and it still wasn't giving me a very opaque effect and eventually I got there where they look fine and I got a nice layer of like a base dirt color on the, what did you say, Tracy, below the belt, everything below the fender line. I got, um, you know, a good, a good base to go on and do Spud's next step, which is using pigments and enamels and oils and, uh, you know, kind of building up some texture. So, but it took me forever. And, uh, did you, did you not at, at any point consider maybe using paint? <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, come on. I mean, why would I do the easy thing? You know, I'm committed at this point. I'm committed. And you know you how it be gets. Committed. Yes, I should have been. You know how it gets. You're like in the middle of it and you're like, I'm going to make this work. I mean, you were just talking about, you know, mm-hmm. and, 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 and I, you know, and plus I had the right tones and, Honestly, one of the things I struggle with the most is getting dirt tones that I like because I can look right out my window and see a thousand acres of dirt and that's almost having too much reference. And I'm very I'm constantly dissatisfied with my dirt tone and I'm like, I got the, I got the tone, I like the tone. I'm just, I don't want to have to mix it up again. I might not get it right the second time, you know, and so I just was like, I'm going to stick with this. I have questions. <laughs> yeah. 
what if you'd hit, you know, you were talking about how the, the, the ink looked perfect when it was wet and then yeah. it, as it dried, it, it stopped looking great. Um, uh-huh. What if you hit it with a varnish? Well, it was still wet though. That's what I'm saying. It looked great while it was still wet. It's like a wash a lot. Of, you know, it, it looks great while it's still wet for whatever reason, the color pops and then as soon as the carrier goes away, it, it, it just almost disappears. It's mm. like just, it's, you know, there's just, because the thing about those inks is that, that differentiates them from paint is one is the pigment is super fine and super powerful. And that's a good thing, but there's not a lot of binder. And so when the carrier evaporates, you're left with, you know, not much of anything. And so for a sort of a dirty discoloration kind of thing, like an exhaust stain or something, it's brilliant. But I need actual layers of visible dirt color. And uh, yeah, just just wasn't getting there. So anyway, I've also been spending a lot of time working on the CAD part of my hashtag the real tiger, my, my tractor kit. And I'm getting to the point where I got to start printing a lot of engineering and fit check parts. And <laughs> that's been going pretty good. Um, you know, fired up my 3D printer for the first time in about six months and got cranking. That, that's all been pretty good. But I did my first Hulk smash <laughs> in a long, long time because... I had this one part that I, when I designed it, I'm like, that's basically going to auto assemble. You know, I've got, you know, good, you know, good assembly features and it's going to just drop right in. And that might've been true in the context of Tamiya extra thin and polystyrene that responds to it. But in the context of a bottle of uh, Starbond black super glue, that's gotten a little too old and never wants to set. <laughs> no, <laughs> Plus, 3D printed parts, no matter how good they look, are never dimensionally perfect. There's always a little bit of warpage, a little bit of dimensional inaccuracy. And I could not get this fucking part to stay put to save my life. And it got to where it looked like a fifth grader had glued it in there with, you know, Elmer's paste. And I just said, okay, I got to stop. I got to wash all this super glue off and start over. And so I did that. I get it all cleaned off. And I'm like, all right. I'm just going to use Loctite Pro. That stuff sets up with a with a quickness. And it did about halfway to said part being in the correct position. <laughs> and I'm like, fuck me. So I decide I'm going to pop it loose, which resulted in me breaking something in half. And I was just like, I, I lost my shit. And it was... It was prototype parts meet floor and let me introduce you to shoe. <laughs> so yeah, it was just, yeah, it was, it was one of those days, but yeah, made me go back to the, you know, drawing board, so to speak, and rethink my engineering and do a better job. So yeah. But printing's really easy, isn't it? You just press a button and that's Yeah, it. sure. Right. Didn't take any skill at all. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It comes just, out just pre-painted a on a base, ready to put mm-hmm. in a competition. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly so yeah anyway that's been the story of of my what am i up to before we get on to letters and our discussion today uh, i just want to drop in a couple of interviews i did at scale model world uh, a couple of weekends ago one first one is with 
Vladimir Sorg from uh, Edward. Uh, he told us some really interesting stuff that's coming up and a bit of information about Edward decals and some of the issues they've had and a few other things. So let's have a listen to that. Hello, hello. This is Tom Arnish of Arnish Models interrupting this great podcast for an annoying ad again. If you need high-precision tools, 3D models, decals or resin parts for hyper-detailing, and I'm sure you do, then just visit my webshop www.anish.io A-N-Y-Z dot I-O Low-priced worldwide shipping and even free shipping for many countries available. And believe it or not, all orders above 50 euros qualify for a free decal sheet of your choice. So, hurry up! See you on the interwebs on anish.io. I'm here with Vlad from Epoch. Vlad, how are you? Oh, I'm well, of course. <laughs> <laughs> you have to speak a little bit, uh, a little tiny bit louder. Okay. Oh uh, yes. Okay. So it, it could be always better for me. You know my English. <laughs> <laughs> Your English is fine. We did. Uh, Listeners may remember we did an interview with yourself and Jan a little while ago on the Spree Cuts Union. Great interview. Uh, I, I, well, Jan said me that I have a hard East European accent, <laughs> which, which is true, I know. <laughs> <laughs> now, originally, uh, there was some worry that you wouldn't be able to make it to Scale Model World this year, but managed to make some arrangements and get here and brought a whole bunch of Edward stuff with you. How are you finding the show so far? Actually, I'm here one hour only right now, but uh, I think it's perfect show. It is really the biggest show uh, in the world, yeah. and uh, looks that uh, what is positive for me is that uh, people still have, they are interesting in the kids, yeah, which is good for us and good for our future, of course. <laughs> I know I went to have a look earlier and I couldn't get anywhere near the kits. There's a huge queue waiting to pay, which is always great to see. Um, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now, you recently announced a new kit and maybe a new family for Stuka. Can you tell us more about that? Uh, Stuka is uh, far ahead, actually. Yeah. Uh, it could take uh, two, maybe three years uh, to release the first Stuka. But yes, it is in our, in our plan. Yeah. And uh, we would like to set up the design job uh, for Stuka immediately when we will finish uh, P40, P40 family. Yeah. The P40B is due next year, is that? Uh, not B. Uh, we, will, uh, we will start with E and uh, continue with all that uh, P40s with uh, Lycoming engine. Uh, so it will be E, F, N, M, K, and that's it, I think. <laughs> uh, you mainly do 148 single engine yes. aircraft. Yeah. Yep. So the P40 will be 148. Yeah. Uh, will there also be 172nd? Because you've been doing some a lot recently with that. And this other story, uh, 72nd uh, line is uh, or second line effect yeah. and uh, we usually uh, do a rescale from 48 scale kit yeah. but uh, we will continue of course and um, we are going to finish the new project right now it uh, has to be introduced sometimes in May I think next year 
which is still secret. Okay. <laughs> I was hoping uh, that maybe if I asked the right question, you'd tell me, but I don't think you're going to tell me. Uh, not yet. <laughs> but we can agree. Ask me about Christmas. I tell you, you can be first then. <laughs> now, before we started recording, we were talking about the difficulty of getting documentation for the uh, Ju87. Is it difficult generally to research aircraft? It is because uh, there are no uh, blueprints, uh, there are no documentation from the factory existing because it was probably destroyed on the end of the war because it was in Eastern Germany territory and uh, it was maybe it was destroyed, maybe it was robbed by Russians, no one knows, but uh, we weren't able to find anything anywhere. So the only way is to scan the original aircraft for us, which is also tough because most of the surviving Stukas are wrecks. So uh, we made uh, the scanning in uh, uh, Berlin uh, Museum, this technical museum on the Museum Island in Berlin, where it's, uh, it is wreck, but uh, in good condition, let's say. Yeah. And there is Arushtuka in Handen, so we had the occasion uh, to make the scan of the complete Stuka in Handen Museum. We spent one week to do it. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it could be good base uh, to, for the reconstruction. Yeah. And the data were also used for the reconstruction of the original Stuka, flying Stuka. So it could be good good project for both sides, yeah, for the real aircraft and for the plastic kits, I think. Uh, you recently, obviously, well, maybe 18 months ago, released the Zero. Japan, famously, when I've tried to research, is another country that seems to have destroyed all its documents. Did you have trouble getting documentation for the Zero, or was that easier? Absolutely not, because there are uh, a lot of drawings for Zeros, and there's a lot of documentation for the, for the Zero. Um, what is a little bit problem with Zero uh, is the lack of documentation of the real aircraft for the markings. Yeah? So many markings, uh, which you can see in the magazines and so, they are ju just the reconstruction. There is no photo existing. Yeah? So it, it is the same with all reconstruction of the markings. Yeah? So it, wa it was a little bit surprising to me because uh, it is unusual concept to do reconstruction yeah. just from the wards uh, of the old pilots. Yeah? Because we know that uh, when pilots describe an, an aircraft, their own aircraft it is usually terrible <laughs> because when, when you have photos then it's absolutely different <laughs> well they say that uh, eyewitnesses are the the most unreliable uh, reference because people how they remember things and how it was were often very different Sometimes, sometimes. Uh, but I, I think we, we have good reference we, uh, we cooperate with uh, a real specialist who knows a lot about zeros. Yeah. So I think uh, what we have from them, it is serious. Yeah. I believe it is serious. Yeah. But uh, as I said, for me it is a little bit unusual style of the work. <laughs> and it is probably specific for uh, Japanese aircraft because they talk uh, less pictures than, than uh, 
Western people. Uh, there's different approach to life, you know. <laughs> I suppose as well, when you're doing aircraft that fought in Europe, there's quite often wrecks, photographs of wrecks and so on, but when they go down in the Pacific, there's no wreck to photograph. So It's the same, yeah. But, but sometimes it's, uh, it is uh, nice work, actually, because, uh, for example, last year we were in Lafayette, in, uh, it is in Louisiana, I think, and um, we saw the wreck of the Zero, where a group of the guys want to build also airworthy condition. And at this moment, it is wreck. Yeah? But we got the reconstruction of the marking and camouflage, and it's extremely interesting. And we have in the box now, in the weekend edition, uh, A6M30 uh, Type 32. And uh, it is really interesting aircraft, yeah? with the history, with the camouflage, with the marking especially. So. Uh, Sometimes you can get interesting thing, even if you don't see the picture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I built one of the first ones that was released, and there was a little bit of a problem with the um, the Hinomaru. The red wasn't very dense. Have you changed the process of printing to improve the decals? Uh, actually, no. Uh, we changed the definition of the color, yeah, because originally we followed the. Uh, uh, the how to write the printing code, yeah, which had to be correct, but we had to change it uh, to follow our process conditions. Yeah, so that's it. Yeah. So uh, the technology is the same, machine is the same, just the definition of the color is uh, is different. Yeah. Yeah, because. Uh, you know, we we use the digital printer. Yeah, it is a little bit different than the screen printer. So, and needs uh, it's we know it now <laughs> that uh, that it needs a little bit different approach when you want to do the definition of the color. So. Well, when you're doing something different and new, there's always going to be problems along the way, I guess. Well, it's it's better right now. Yeah, but. Um, to be absolutely honest, uh, our process uh, still has the problems with the red colors and uh, especially with the yellow. Uh, it is anything what we fight really very hard to get uh, correct red and correct uh, correct yellow. So, uh, and hopefully it, it would be improved. <laughs> yeah. And it seems it is uh, mainly about the definition of the color for the process. So. Is there any news you'd like to give to listeners? Anything new they can look for coming up? About the kids, you mean? <laughs> um, what is new? Or Messerschmitts in 72nd scale? There are no new more, of course. <laughs> Absolutely understand. But we are uh, close to release uh, Messerschmitt 109G6. Family actually, because uh, there are a couple of subtypes uh, in, in G6. G6 is uh, maybe most complicated <laughs> Messerschmitt I know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it is close to be released, and uh, we are also very close to release P51B in a quarter scale, which could be released uh, in uh, in spring next year. Yeah, much faster than we originally expected. And there is also that 
that uh, new 70-second scale. Still secret. <laughs> I heard the um, Avia S199 was delayed, the 148 kit. Is there any news on that? It is uh, ready, for, ready for tooling, uh, but we decided uh, to give away the P51B and P40. Yes, so we will wide with S199, a little bit, couple of months, yeah. which is uh, simple because uh, we sell tough right now. <laughs> it's not easy like uh, two years ago, and we need a more interesting project than the specific Czech aircraft. Yeah. It's the one I'm waiting for. American aircraft <laughs> is American aircraft. Uh, that's simple. <laughs> yeah, they sell and P51s as well. You know. <laughs> of course, of course. Uh, but it is the same like Spitfire. Yeah, because uh, actually we sold more Spitfires than P51 uh, these. Which was a surprise for me. I, I didn't expect it. Uh, uh, but uh, I guess everyone loves a Spitfire. Spitfire is Spitfire. Yeah. <laughs> like 109. It's a legend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Same. Yeah, it's the same. Yeah. But uh, I must say that the, the Spitfire Mark 1 and 5, it was a very good seller. Yeah. And uh, we still sold more uh, BF109s than Spitfires. But uh, the Spitfire sales was much faster than uh, BL 109. Uh, people or uh, always say, "Oh, you do Germans. Everyone makes Germans. Germans are best." It's not true. Actually, the aircraft are better than Germans. Yeah. The sales of the Spitfires and Mustang, in fact, like. Is, uh, is better than uh, Focke-Bulls and Messerschmitts. Yeah. But it, it looks different, but it is that. <laughs> a friend of mine uh, has asked me to ask you whether you tend to do any more armor kits or any collaborations like you did with uh, Asuka. It's possible that we will reopen uh, this project because we, we stopped it a couple of years ago. Uh, the problem is that uh, we are aircraft specialists. Yeah. We are flyers, <laughs> but uh, my military speci- uh, specialization, yeah, I was tank crew <laughs> in the army, but uh, we understand aircraft, we don't understand tanks, that's our problem. Yeah. So the prepared uh, working tank project is more tough for us than the prepper such pro- uh, project for, for the aircraft. But we want uh, to be back and uh, prepare something with, with the tank in the next year, maybe a little bit later, but we would like to do it in the cooperation with some other companies or more companies, you know, which means that we will buy the plastic back in our boxes. Something like our limited editions, but uh, the approach must be a little bit different because uh, uh, modelers uh, doing the tanks have the different point of view, I think, on the, their subject, and it's, it's different work. Yeah. Doesn't look that, but I, I feel that. <laughs> Were you tank crew on T72? No. I Actually, I was... Uh, in anti-aircraft battery, light anti-aircraft battery, 30 millimeters uh, guns, 
in, 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 in Czechoslovak army in the middle of the 80s when there was that crisis that uh, American Pershing were, uh, were installed in Germany and Russian secret, Russians secretly installed their rockets in, in Czechoslovakia. It was a very busy period actually. <laughs> so I was in a 17 tank regiment in Team Nadvatavo. was south of the, the Czech, Czech uh, country, close to German border. <laughs> Wow, at the front uh, end. And the equi- equipment of the, the tank regiment at that time was uh, were T-55s, wow. 90 pieces. <laughs> but old, even then. No, when the uh, Czech army has 36 tanks uh, at this moment, I think, mm. that time they had 90 pieces in one regiment only. Yeah, a big change. It's a big change, absolutely. Well, luckily the Cold War's over. We will need more, it's clear. (laughs) Yeah, 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 soon. (laughs) Seeing the Russians in Ukraine, it's better to have more tanks now, but probably not too much like in the 80s. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for your time today. You're very welcome, thank you. I hope listeners have enjoyed that. Do head on over to the Edward website if you couldn't make it to the show, see everything that's out at the moment, particularly have a look at the photo etch and the brassing stuff, because there's hundreds of releases every month and don't forget to check out the uh, edward info magazine for all the latest releases and fantastic research articles thank you Vlad. thank you <laughs> all right hope you all enjoyed that the next one for those of you that are into armor great news uh gabor fodor the owner of miniman factory has taken over Friel. i sat down with him and had a brief chat about his plans for Friel and what we can expect coming up in the future. Okay, I'm here with Gabor from Miniman Factory. Yes. You've also recently purchased a big name in the model business, right? Greetings, guys. Yes, it happened. Friel model. Fantastic. Uh, For a long time now, people have had a lot of trouble getting hold of Friel because uh, Giuseppe, the owner, decided to only do direct sales. Uh, but now you've taken over, they're going to be more available again for all the modelers out there that want their heavy metal tracks, right? Of course. We will also sell by the website for the private persons, but we will come back to the, to the dealers, distributors also. Do you intend to bring the whole range back? Yes. 35, 48, uh, and also some 16 scale tracks. We also have some figures. We will not uh, make them in the future. We have some stock. But the tracks, any, any available. And they'll still be metal? No. Yes, they will be heavy metal tracks. <laughs> Sorry, I just keep thinking heavy metal. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> any plans to produce any new tracks? Uh, I would like. I have some ideas. Uh, the company takeover is not easy. I have to, to, to learn the manufacturer that I can keep the quality. And uh, if I feel I'm finished, I can, can make very good casts very good molds and they take not all the time of, of me uh, then, then, then we, will, we, will, we will release also some new tracks Now for those that don't know what's involved in making metal track? Uh, the metal tracks are made in, in, in centrifugal casting spin casting from tin You use a um, uh, high temperature rubber mold? Yes the molds are uh, not like the the, 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 the 
uh, resin cast molds. They are room room temperature vulcanizing. Our molds are, are really vulcanized uh, uh, molds. They vulcanize on, on 90 degree and in high pressure. And then you have to spin it with a centrifuge to yes, yes, force yes. the metal. Yeah. They looks like a cake, uh, but they are much better. I suppose the uh, benefit as well though with metal is that there's no waste. You can, any spare metal or, or um, bad cast, you can melt and use again. Of course, the metal has a lot of lot of pros. Not only the weight and not the the, the reusable avail, uh, ability. Uh, you can also uh, paint them to the to the or, uh, to the right metal color with, with with chemicals. You don't need to 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 paint them by a paint. Yeah, you can use a blackening fluid. Blackening to, fluid, yeah. for example, you can make them black, rusty, and a lot of waves, but makes them more, more, more naturally than the plastics. Now, you're not new to the model business. You've not been really. running Mini Man Factory how long now? 16 years. 16 years. Uh, I remember uh, I was 16 years ago here, first time in Telford, uh, with our first kit, that was the M915 long-range track of the US Army. And that was resin, right? Yes, that was resin. Listeners won't know, but also you did a lot of casting for other people, including myself. Some of the inside the armor kits were cast by you. Uh, I would like to keep up the, the resin casting workshop. If it's possible, I will. Do you think there's a future for resin with 3D printed uh, sets coming along? In my opinion. The 3D printing is uh, for master model making, for prototype making. In my opinion, the 3D printed parts are not stable for years. They bend, they are brittle. Uh, I personally use them for prototype making and after I made a mod and cast them from resin or if they are tracks in metal. But you, do you do 3D design yourself? Yes, of course. What program do you use? Do you use uh, I use Rhino and SolidWorks. How long have you been doing 3D design? 13 years. 13 years. So, yeah, you know a little bit about it. <laughs> 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 so a lot of your masters were already 3D printed? Uh, no. In the beginning, the masters was, was made by the hand. Uh, for me, they are much more romantic. I love them. We bought a lot of plastic cards and, and evergreens and glued them together. Then came the problem that they bent from the gluing and we have to find a solution how they are not bending. And, uh... There's a real art to hand making masters. People don't really know uh, that haven't done it, but you can't have voids, you can't have undercuts. You have to really understand how molding works. Is it the same with 3D? You have to plan the shape uh, so that you can cast yes, it. Yes, of course. Your head must so 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 so, so that the knowledge must 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 be inside you, because if you design something, you have to know what the problem will be if you print after the print after the mold making. This is quite difficult. But 13 years, you've kind of worked it out, years I guess. Yeah. Should be enough. But we learn every day. Yeah. Anything else listeners should know about coming up from you? Any new 
items coming along. In the last time we worked with, with the big scale models with minimum factory. I just have coming a uh, uh, one to 24 scale excavator of the US Army, a John Deere made. Uh, hope I will be, be, be enough to release me. Uh, meanwhile, I also make the, the, the Freewheel model company. How close are you to being able to open the Freewheel store? I think in two weeks. We, we only work on the uh, administration. The, the credit card testings are done. We work now on PayPal, the testings. Uh, we have 95% of products in stock. Uh, and the workshop is, uh, I think, in one, two weeks workable. So, so we, work, we start to work uh, with them. I have already the employee the main of the employees already tested they worked with my other companies uh, I think in two weeks we can open the, the, the workshop. How many people do you employ? Uh, now three So you're ready to do uh, mass production for metal tracks for No, the, the three is quite, quite uh, few but uh, we start the, the domains. In the beginning I will also stay uh, near the, the centrifuges and uh, we'll see. Just to make sure they know how to operate it, to make sure the staff know yes. how to make it, yes. yes. In any case, in my company, I always had to, to, to do anything better than any of the employees. <laughs> yeah, uh, you can't tell people what to do if you can't do it better yourself. So, Where can people buy the products? Uh, they can buy, of course, on our website. Which is? Which is... Uh, freewheelmodel.hu as Hungary and of course we start with the, with the, with the, with the resellers uh, I already have the contracts in Germany with uh, uh, Model Bauköning Japan with uh, MS models uh, I did get from Giuseppe a contract to Historex agents and uh, we also see who will be the next next uh, distributor in the UK for us. Uh, what about Mini Manufactory, the website for that? The Mini Manufactory website is uh, pending now, but it's not new. It's pending for a half year now. So we did not uh, do any new because we worked on, 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 on very special projects. I uh, always work in the modeling factory, modeling business, but sometimes in... Uh, in a very special lines. We made a, a, a water cleaning treatment models in big scale for a water treating plants. Uh, they made a, a one to eight, one to 10 scale big show models for Rheinmetall. And uh, we, we make really some very special models also, but not for the public are. Yeah. For commercial contracts, yeah. for business contracts. All right, well, thank you very much for your time today. Anything else we should know about? Thank you, Chris. Uh, I am very happy that I'm on the lead of the Minimum Factory Company. It would be not possible without my wife and without my friends like Chris. <laughs> thank you very much. Thank you very much. Hi. I'm Scott, the creator and owner of the Scale Modeler Supply, Australia's largest manufacturer of hobby paints. 
Our premium airbrush ready acrylic lacquer paints are designed specifically for use on plastics with a comprehensive range covering all popular modelling subjects including military, aircraft, rail, auto, sci-fi and more. And not only that, but we also have a wide selection of essential hobby tools and now, Infinite Colour, our new range of water-based paints for miniatures. So to check out our range and to find your closest retailer, please visit our website at scalemodeler.com.au. So when quality matters, choose SMS Paints. There we go. So Gabor's very into his heavy metal. Expect lots of new tracks in the future after they get the uh, original lineup up and running. All right, it's time for the Musaru Cup date. The Musaru Cup date. I finished it. <laughs> right, let's do some letters. No, no, no. <laughs> let's just wait a second because. <laughs> Yeah, as usual, you are uh, underselling yourself. yourself. Yeah, yeah, selling yourself short. It's pretty cool, man. You did a lot of really cool scratch work and a creative thing, and uh, also and it's managed. tiny. You did it all this shit on a tiny yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, it's tiny. Yeah, and once again, managed to pay a, a very nice tribute to the uh, brave soldiers in Ukraine. Thank you very much, guys. It was good fun. Um, I've always been a, a last minute Larry, always like doing my homework the night before the it's got to be handed in or studying for the cramming for the exam five minutes before the test. So it was nice to finish it early for once. Yeah, I think you're the first. I haven't seen anybody yeah. else uh, announce a, a finish and doesn't have to be done until what, March? So you're a solid four months ahead of schedule. You know what this means, don't you? I have no idea. Yeah. That Hancock's next. Oh. <laughs> Look at his face. He's like, I'm not doing it. Next next <laughs> next year. Watch. It's gonna be it's gonna be it's gonna be He's uh, gonna quit the podcast a week before. <laughs> it's gonna be uh, it's gonna be a car model. Wouldn't it be really cool if it was like an interwar civilian plane? He'd be like all over it. <laughs> I'll do a car model if you'll do 3D print some cinder blocks to put up under it. Nice <laughs> <laughs> uh, Liverpool road sign for the English. Yeah. Listener. So, Chris, just to, yeah. uh, to refresh people's mind, it's a 172nd scale Russian truck. Give us the. Yeah, Ural 4320. Okay, and- uh, it's by ICM, and they actually originally released it, I think, about 10 years ago. But they've been doing a few recently that are with different bodies and different decals and things for armed forces of Ukraine and stuff like that. But I didn't want to do it with Digicam, even though it comes with some nice Digicam decals. So uh, also, of course, if I screw it up, then like the true armor modeler I am, I don't have to be any good at filling seams and all that crap. <laughs> How was the kit? I'm joking. Uh, I thought it was okay. A, a lot of the other guys are saying, oh, it's a bit of a dog and it's not. You know, it's not brilliant, but it's not terrible. It's not like, you know, an old special hobby kit or something. Yeah. You know. It's not like the plastic potato. Yeah. Word. Yeah, so, not bad. Not bad. It's kind of like a resin kit in plastic, if you know what I mean. So it's not <laughs> That's amazing. not a... That is not a resounding endorsement. No, no but, but it puts it on a, the scale, right, of, of where it is. Damning indictment yeah. either, you know? I, I mean? don't know. So, yeah. I don't know. I'll tell you, actually, looking at it, I... I reckon the body was hand-mastered. And that should give you some idea of yeah. it. Mm. 
you're just making me more and more glad that I did it last year. Mm. I'm glad you did it last year because I just that you know, sorry, Greg Ost, but that Mustang just didn't do it for me. I don't know what it is. It's just one seventy second fight. It's a bit it worked out good because I loved me some Mustang and uh, I'd been yeah, cu- not tiny know. though. <laughs> well, I'd been one seventy second curious for a while, and man, did that <laughs> take care of that problem? <laughs> well, it's, it's uh, one on the list you can tick off. One seventy second fight. I'm done. Don't have to do another one of yeah, them ever again. <laughs> yeah, I got full post nut clarity on that deal. Never again. Ever, but it did arrive back from uh, from Europe. I've got, Ooh. yeah. The, was it in one piece? Well, I don't honestly. I don't know. I haven't opened it yet. It, it, <laughs> Tom and I have this uh, ongoing war of peanuts because mm. he knows that I just despise packing peanuts, like to the point where if I was king of the world, I would make that shit illegal so fast it'd make your head spin. Unless it's the biodegradable kind, you know, the ones that are made out of cellulose you can actually like eat them but the styrofoam ones those things are fucking terrible i hate them and he knows it and so he's like yep i'm gonna ship you all of my peanuts that i can't get rid of and, <laughs> i keep and, hearing penis yeah <laughs> well, maybe that Sorry. too because it was kind of it was kind of a penis move but the box is the, the box is still sitting out in the studio I haven't even opened it yet. Did you guys put my my SMC medal in there somewhere? No, I've got it. In my No. What? I've got it. You have it? Yeah. Oh, well. And he's keeping it. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs> when were you going to tell me actually? I was just going to mail it to you. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, I went up and collected it. Okay, yeah, right. So I just figured you guys put it in the bottom of my little shipping container. That That would have made sense, wouldn't it? That would have been smart, but I did not do that. Well, actually, (laughs) though, that's not a bad thing. So tell me right now, did you guys do anything? Did you you put anything else back in the little plastic toolbox other than the model? No, and do you know what else I didn't do? I didn't pay attention to how you packed it when I unpacked it, so I had to fucking guess when I repacked it. <laughs> that is such a Chris move. Well, it's going on to someplace else. It's gonna, it's got a new, right. it's gonna get a new owner that I'm not gonna say here because uh, he doesn't know. Uh, and what this tells me is, I don't even need to open that box. No, you can. I can just. You can out Tom Tom and just pass I the can. peanuts along. I can. I can literally not even open it and just take it right back to the UPS store, put a new address label on it, yep. and be done with it. Yep. Right? That's what you're telling me, yep. right? 500 ecstasy tabs Tom put in the box. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah I, don't, I don't know what Tom put in it, but we yeah. didn't put anything else Yeah, he might have put something in for you. He might have put in I'll ask him, but I don't, yeah. I don't think he did. So. I don't mean drugs. I mean, like, yeah. you know, and yeah, his he, goodies or something. Well, yeah, he had sent me some samples pre- prior to that, so it's probably all good. But, yeah, it's good to know because I was not looking forward to <laughs> yeah. to peanuts all over my floor. So, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Uh, that's pretty sweet to, to, to out-scoundrel Tom. <laughs> mm. I'm afraid the uh, new recipient may not see the humor in it, but when he listens to this, he'll maybe, I don't know. We'll see. The only thing that was there when I did it was one of the wheels had fallen off. Stop. You didn't tell what? me this before, so I'm not believing you right now. I did. You know. No, it, yeah, one of the wheels came off. You never but the told way it me came that. off, you never told me the that. glue. He's mentioned up. it. The yeah. glue failed on the axle. It just slid off. So you got to just push it back on. 
And because you're magnets, it all just stays in place. It's brilliant. So that was the only thing He's talking in about transit when, he when you shipped it. it. To, yeah. When I unpacked it, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the wheels had fallen off. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't remember you saying anything about that, but I've had yeah, a, yeah, I've, I did. Had, I've had a lot going on, so hey, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you slept also, a lot. It was since a, then. Yeah, it was, a, <laughs> it was like two months it ago, was several months ago, <laughs> oh, a month yeah. ago. Yeah, right, right. Okay, sorry, new owner, but I'm not opening that box just to glue that fucking wheel back on. You're on your own. Oh, I'll tell you what. Even if they're not a modeler, if, if they can't push a wheel back onto an axle, then the, the, the world is fucked. It oh, really he is. can. Yeah, there you go then, so, so you haven't got to worry about it. But Chris, you're saying that whenever you unpack the model to put it on the base, to put it on the table, the wheel would come loose. Yeah. Now, when you yeah. put it all so, back in the box to to take it off the table, the wheel was still there. Yeah. Yeah, I put it in on the stub and yeah. put it in there, but of course it might come loose in okay. transit, so well, it when they're unpacking did, yeah, it, it be careful yeah. so they don't lose it. Obviously it. did before, so yeah. 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 Okay. But at least it wasn't the axle broke, if you see what I mean. Yeah, so, that would have just, been a so you'd say it, it, just, it just slipped off of there because some dipshit didn't do a good job of gluing it on. Way to go, dipshit. That'd be me. That'd well, be I mean, me. It, it worked out for the best because if it had been glued on securely, you might have had a broken axle and then... Right, yeah. That is yeah, always worse. Yeah, and at least you know it wasn't from pressure. It's just from shaking or whatever. Yeah. So. yeah, so yeah, new owner, you can just put it on there, dry fit it on there, Stick it on the base, and the magnets will orient it correctly. And then you can just put a little bit of extra thin in there, and you're good. You're going to kill me now, but you didn't even need to glue it. Because of the magnets, I could just put it there, line it up, and leave it, and that was it. Yeah. So, and you still got gold medal. So, yeah, you know, true. Thank your you. wheel alignment yeah. must have been pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I worked on it. I worked on it pretty hard. But when I was doing it, it was not on the base. It was like stuck to a metal, you know, like I have a flat metal plate that I use for that. And so I had to glue them on there because it had to get moved from that to like, you know, and when I took pictures of it, I didn't have it on the base for all the pictures. Anyway, whatever. Anyway, this is <laughs> way too much wheel talk. Tom, Tom, speaking of Tom, he's messaging. <laughs> yes, his ears must be burning. Anyway. <laughs> Anyway, don't we? Hello. Would you like your model shit back to you in a container? <laughs> He's gonna. I'll tell you what. Last time I saw him, he did not look amused about all that. So oh, he was. Uh, he was. Yeah. He. Yeah. He's. <laughs> he's good. He's good. So, all right. But don't we have some letters or something to read? We do. This one is from CJ Boke. He loves the podcast. You're all killer modelers. I've listened since episode 12 or so and having a group of like minds where I really feel at home changed my trajectory in this hobby. I'll leave the ass kissing at that. No, you can carry on yeah, if you want. By all means. I'm writing yeah, in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just, just Don't. Stop. Uh, he's writing Don't. in because Stop. he's got a 3D printing question. Uh, so we'll, Tracy and I can just <laughs> switch off for a few minutes and make a coffee. <laughs> take, a, take a quick power nap. Uh, He's finally doing a P40 build, uh, one that he's been eagerly planning since seeing Will's P40 and Air Modeler. Uh, it's easily one of his top three builds of all time. Wow. So, yeah, that wasn't wasn't quite all of the ass-kissing, but he's not wrong. Thanks, man. Uh, I also have Perfect Pits, of course. Uh, thank you very much. Please buy all my other books so I can eat. And so I really want to do some more 3D work in my cockpit as well. That said, my skills are not up to creating something as complex as a P40 seat or the lever on the wall. As such, I wanted to ask, is it a faux pas to ask another modeler to share or sell STL files that they've created? 
I feel like it's an interesting question that may or may not be worthy of some podcast discussion. Hmm. I can see this concept going in either direction because on the one hand, these things are very personal. Sharing files is fraught with distribution concerns, etc. But on the other hand, some people just post them for free since they do not care. I dialed in my printer using Fanchi's excellent designs, which I'm very grateful that he was willing to post on Colts 3D. Will, if you are willing to share, I'd be, oh, yeah, blah, blah, blah. Don't need that bit. Uh, Wait, didn't he say it? Yeah, didn't he ask if I'm willing to share, if I'll sell him the... the... He did, yeah. So if you're willing to, uh, he'd be very interested in purchasing the STL files you used in your P40 cockpit, along with appropriate licenses to never sell or otherwise (laughs) distribute them himself, of course. Uh, short of installing a guard in his house to prevent it, I don't know how you can stop that. Nice, well, this he, STL look. file will self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs> 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 yeah, that's what we need for sure. That would make life a lot simpler. And uh, look, I first of all, uh, thanks for the kind words. I really appreciate it. Um, and uh, absolutely, I don't think it's ever a faux pas to ask a fellow model maker that's done that kind of work if they're willing to uh, if they're willing to share what you don't want to do is like you see a lot of these idiots uh, on some of these groups where all they say is stl question mark which <laughs> too lazy to even properly ask the fucking question yeah and, and it's like it's like they just take for granted that you're going to you know that you're going to just give it away like i'm working right now on uh, hashtag the real tiger and I'm a member of the Steiger. T- that hashtag's not taken off. Huh? Yeah. Well, that's okay. That hashtag. That's okay. It's still it's <laughs> it's, it's, it's still the real Tiger. Anyway, I'm in this uh, uh, group for Steiger tractors, and I, the the folks in there have been really good about helping me with information and reference material. And the other day, I posted just a quick update, and I had a guy who's like, "Hey, where can I download these STLs?" And I'm like, "Well." When I'm done, I'll let you know, and I'll let you know how much it's going to cost. I mean, I just just don't come across as like you're entitled because these things. I mean, look, I've, I'm maybe maybe I hope sixty percent of the way through uh, the the real tiger, and I've got close to two hundred hours of design time and printing time and research time and. I'm doing it because I love it. I'm not hoping to make a profit, but you know, I think if you just show that you respect that, which this guy clearly did, I think the opening, the proper opening, is always, "Hey, man, are you? You know, I, I uh, you know, I, I saw your 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 CAD work or your your three D printed parts on your thing. Are you willing to sell those, either as?" you know, printed parts or STL files. I think if you open with the, would you sell them? You're, you're, you're being, you know, that's, that's appropriate. And if, if they want to just give them to you, then they'll let you know. And if they want the dough then they'll let you know that too. So yeah, always. And absolutely uh, hit me up on the old farce books um, and we'll make a deal. I, Cause look, I've sold those parts other places. I'm not going to say no. Well, it, that, this kind of ties into something that, that, I experienced recently and and I was talking to somebody about where it's not exactly the same, but it's just the, the attitude and the gratitude is kind of exactly is, is what leads me into it where um, I helped somebody on a, a, 
pretty significantly on a, on a Hetzer build. And whenever they, they were publishing their build, they, they kept saying things like, well, uh, according to my research and what I've uncovered is, and I'm like, bro, you, you didn't research anything or uncover shit. Like I gave you all that <laughs> and there's no tip of the hat, no gratitude, yeah. no, no mention of like, you're, you're taking somebody else's, again, you're talking about how many hours you put into this, this design, like you're taking research that took years to, to cull together mm-hmm. and passing it off as your own. Like, you know what? At a certain point, I stopped helping them and let them just keep making mistakes. Yeah, that's not know? just that's not just disrespectful or oblivious. That's just straight up chicken shits. What that is? Yeah, that's some douchebaggery. So, the the bottom line is, if 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 you reach out to somebody and and they help you, like if you're writing an article or whatever, man, it's common courtesy to just give a tip of the hat. Uh, ab- yeah, absolutely. Just show respect. You know, that's it. Yeah. I, look, I the rule I was always taught in business and life is that gratitude is the attitude. And you're much, you know, because people will say, oh, you don't have to thank me. It's all good. Well, okay. I know I didn't have to, but it's the right thing to do. You're never going to be, you're never going to make a mistake by saying thank you too many no. times. No, you're but not. you definitely, you definitely can make a mistake by not saying it. Saying thank you is about who you are yep, as well. Exactly. It's not about yeah. not just about acknowledging them, it's about being the right being a good person. Yeah, absolutely. If they don't want yeah. your thanks, fair enough. But you need to give it because that's who you are. And I would say also on the other side, if somebody says thank you and you don't think it was a big deal, just be gracious. Just say, Hey man, no problem. Yeah. The, okay. the whole you didn't have to say thank you thing is just I don't know, it kinda of wears me out, but you know, it is it's what it is. Just Social grace. Yeah, I mean, I, I always respond with no problem, happy to help, you know. Absolutely. Just, yeah. Yeah, just be, you're welcome. Yeah. yeah. Just That's be gracious. It. Yep. It's funny, actually, because I just finished laying out the book today, the um, Hero of Slavar book I mentioned earlier. Time, time. <laughs> uh, I just finished laying it out today, and uh, a couple of people's names might got mentioned in the book, along with a couple of other people, you know, like uh, when I was doing the groundwork. Uh, I, I happen to mention that Alexandra Duchamp helped me a lot with that to make it more realistic because, you know, people are going to want to help you if they see that you're grateful. When you absolutely. Help if you want. Or when they help you. Yeah. Absolutely. None of us gets any anywhere in life running totally solo. Nobody lives in a vacuum. And, you know, speaking as a disabled guy who's been – the beneficiary of a lot of kindness from strangers over the last 14 years and, and had to ask for help in a lot of places where I hate asking for help. You know, you, the fact is if you want people to be on your team, they need to know you appreciate their efforts. It's also, you know, like for, for uh, in the scale modeling community, like thanking Alexandra is like, you're also sort of, uh, um, promoting his work like hey absolutely. this is somebody I'm, yeah i like to yeah, point people yeah, to yeah. people's work yeah, this yeah, is somebody absolutely. i'm really excited about if you haven't looked at their work you yeah. really should check it out because it's really yeah, inspirational never hesitate to promote the other guy yeah absolutely also i think it's um it's an important part of modeling and especially writing in modeling to acknowledge the fact that no one of us is some great auteur that comes up with everything we're all uh, the result of lots of different relationships, conversations, and work we're influenced by, and everything else. 
you know, we're all learning off of each we're other. We're all standing. And it doesn't hurt to yeah, acknowledge we're that. All, yeah. you know. We're all standing on the shoulders of giants. Yeah, and it's it's a solitary hobby, so the relationships that you make and, and keep in the uh, within the hobby are, are really mm-hmm. almost more important because of that, you know. Having people uh, in your in your peer group that you're close with, that are like when you show them what you're working on or, or whatever, like there's mm-hmm. they're get, they are as excited for you as you are. You know, when when you yeah. pull something off, you're like fucking hell. This is this. I think this looks great. You know, and like having having people just kind of be excited with you because that I mean this hobby, it's just that's not it's not like you can show the guy next to you at uh, in line at, at Wendy's like hey man look what I look what I did last night he's like get the fuck away from me you weirdo <laughs> yeah you, know, you never know this is a great segue to something that you wanted to talk about will thanksgiving's coming up right yeah i mean over here what are you yeah, guys thankful yeah, over for over here in the over here in the good old US of A we do tend to celebrate that we don't give thanks for anything here because we're miserable grateful <laughs> fucks <laughs> Yeah. Oh no, we're grateful. We just all the time. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, you know, look. I mean, uh, some people are. You know, think it's corny. Um, I, I think you know that 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 it's good to be thankful every day, not just at Thanksgiving. And and uh, you know, it's important to celebrate the small victories. Um, you know, even as much of a misanthropist as I am, I'm 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 thankful for the relationships in my life, the people who have have uh you know chosen to be in my circle of friends and uh, i value those folks a lot and uh that's a, that includes you two turds <laughs> look at us the last two in the bowl <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah same i mean I, i'm thankful for, for the relationships that i've built through the hobby because hey, like we said it's like-minded people who get excited about the same geeky things um, and people who are just genuinely good humans. Um, it's it's just nice to surround yourself with that because the world tries to surround you with, with people who are not genuinely good sometimes. Oh, so yeah. We may talk about some of that. Yeah. So it's nice to 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 have people around you that that remind you like, Hey, this is fun. Like, I really enjoy this. I enjoy this, this craft, you know, um, I enjoy what other people are doing and being able to ask them questions and, you know, having somebody show me a picture and be like, fucking hell, that's cool as shit, man. Like just dumb little stuff like that. Um, nothing nothing dumb about that at all. And, and happy for, you know, things in the greater part of, of life, you know, like, health and family and you know you know other things that i feel very fortunate to have so i'm thankful the english are emotionally repressed (laughs) (laughs) no seriously though uh i'll join in i'm thankful that i have a family who have supported me in doing this for a living and have supported the hobby to the point where i could do it for a living because um as the awful she must be obeyed jokes and everything else on the internet would have us know that a lot of people perhaps don't have a partner who supports them or don't have it the right place in their relationship with the hobby and it causes friction and I'm just very glad that that doesn't happen for me and that, uh, that they're very supportive all the way my whole family and my, my wife's family as well so uh, none of them will be listening but thank you anyway because <laughs> they support it but they sure as shit ain't going to listen to it <laughs> <laughs> 
Alright, well now that we've waxed all maudlin for a bit, don't we have, what's our next letter? So the next email uh, is from Dave Morris. Guys, it's finally escalated, escalated, which is ironic considering what's going to happen in a minute. It's finally escalated to a full burr under the saddle. Will someone please tell Will that nepotism is favoritism towards a relative? (laughs) He keeps using nepotism when he means favoritism. And for me, it's escalated to full-on gnashing of teeth. Dave Morris. (laughs) All right. I have been fully called out. And I love that. I love I love to be challenged. I love the opportunity to be wrong because that's when you learn something. Unfortunately, for this fella, <laughs> that's not going to be this time. I have just very quickly googled nepotism and I feel like when you google it, you know, the first definition you get, you know, that's that's a pretty good indicator. You know, you can go on to the Oxford dictionary or whatever. But this says, nepotism, the practice among those with power or influence of favoring relatives, friends, or associates, especially by giving them jobs. And I did. I did. Since we got this letter, I googled some other ones. And and here's another one. Nepotism is the act of granting an advantage, privilege, or position to relatives or close friends or close friends in an occupation or field. So, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Thanks for playing. Come again next time. Unnash your teeth. (laughs) But hey, look, I totally respect it because you guys know I am all about the nomenclature. And I feel that the world would be a much better place if people actually stuck to the real definitions of words. So, uh, you know what? Bring it. Always, always love these kind of letters. Good fun. Uh, so next one's from John Davey potentially unpopular opinion inbound I hope you're all sitting down I've been viewing from a distance all the hype about the recent IPMS USA controversy and I can't help but think that everyone is getting extremely bent out of shape over a non-event whilst I agree it appears that the USA branch of IPMS is terribly and dishonestly run we need to look at the bigger picture what is our hobby all about we build models primarily for our own enjoyment and satisfaction isn't that what a hobby is about? It's also a small subset of life. I take my modelling seriously, but I'm also quite aware they're just pieces of plastic, not terribly far removed from toys. Then comes competitions, events in which we compete and win medals for our modelling skills. Great, but also a small subset of modelling. So what it boils down to is that we're talking about issues with the ju- judging of a few well-built, I disagree, pieces of plastic and lots of seemingly mature grown men and women getting bent out of shape because someone threw their weight around in a small competition in a small hobby that a small percentage of the world's population are interested in. It all seems so insignificant in the grand scheme of things, yet every time I open Facebook, I see IPMS this, IPMS that. It's really tiring. Ooh, Maybe you should I should probably it stop listening now. <laughs> Maybe this I see episode it anyway. <laughs> Maybe I see it differently from outside the USA, but I suspect not. I hope normal business resumes soon and we can get back to enjoying the hobby we love. Now, I'd just like to mention that because of other recording and, and other stuff that's gone out, that letter is actually from October the 10th. Uh, yeah. And I'm sorry we didn't get to it sooner. Uh, but I find it quite ironic that even a month and 12 days later, that shit's still rumbling on. (laughs) (sighs) Yeah, as we will say. um, But, yeah. So, look, I fully fully agree with the IPMS fatigue. We were really trying to be done with this, what, like, I don't know, what, like three months ago? A year ago. Yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah. And, um, 
unfortunately, you know, the events have continued to unfold and we kind of feel that as, you know, to whatever degree we can call ourselves responsible journalists and observers of the, of the model making space that we kind of had a responsibility. And uh, so I don't think any of us are going to apologize for, for covering that or talking about it. Um, you know, and look, I go back to the Podfather's statement. The standard you walk by is the standard you accept. And I'm never going to accept that somebody was just blatantly dishonest committing nepotism. <laughs> and without saying something, that's just that's just not in my nature. So, yeah, no, well, sorry. I mean, to respond directly to some of the terminology he used in his letter, like, Yes, it's a small subset of a small subset of a... But we're not talking about anything that matters to people outside of this subset. Exactly. So so the size of the subset is irrelevant. Exactly. Because you're not talking about how the, uh, you know, whatever IPMS shenanigans affects the guy who works at the auto ports store down the street. Because it Yeah, this isn't doesn't. going out on a national radio yeah. show. It's like, going out to modelers. But if it matters to the people who are within that sphere, the, the the dues paying members, the people who want to attend the nationals and things like that, the people within the hobby, if it matters to a large portion of them, then it matters. Like I'm, you can't yeah. you can't wish it away. Uh, if if people are unhappy about it, then they're going to say something. But just saying that that it you know we should just ignore it because it's a small subset of a small so like you're you're bringing some non-argument to the argument yeah i mean um, anybody it, who i think competes, it's worth i think <laughs> it's worth just looking at the fact that he says there's someone from outside the u.s i think there is an argument that um that this really is only of interest to people in the u.s well, sure, of course, of course, around there the world, is. Yeah. and that there are models around the yeah, world. Yeah, absolutely, and I totally get the idea that maybe competition is not as important to everybody. But even if it's just ten people, those ten people have a right to expect that whatever contest they enter is going to be conducted honestly. Period. No compromises. Uh, I spoke to John John Murray earlier, a friend of the show, and uh, he told me that he, he really hates bullies and he really hates people shitting on other people and i think the reason we covered it is that there was a massive case of someone being bullied and shit on oh there definitely it wasn't was. just what happened in the contest it was how chris mcclain was treated afterwards yeah and mm-hmm. i think it was worth covering because still is still is by the yep. way yeah all right so talking of ipms uh it's been rumbling on again this week um <laughs> Uh, see that uh, the editor of the IPMS USA Journal has chosen to use his position and his column to grind a few personal axes. That that is that is a very generous take, much more generous than his take. Uh, okay, so the print journal just came out, and the editor, this guy uh, Christopher Buckholtz. Um, saw fit to write a one-page screed rant diatribe, whatever you want to call it, railing against the people about, who wait about an event he didn't attend. About an yeah. he, sa- yeah. he says right up front, I wasn't there. But and was what wasn't the title of the piece? The, the let, real... me, let me just um, see if I can read it because the first paragraph is worth uh, is worth looking at. 
Uh, the title was Two Nationals, The Real One, and The Social Media Version. <laughs> and keep in mind, again, he did not go to the real one. But he was better. featured prominently. I was unable to yeah. attend this year's Nationals. Uh, but some of the disappointment was alleviated by my ability to follow what was going on through social media. Through what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> From everything I saw and read, the the week of the event when people were actually face-to-face and enjoying themselves was about as happy a time for modelers as anyone could imagine, with great work on display and a well-organized event that future contests will aspire to. The next two weeks saw social media turn into an appalling cesspit of complaints, accusations and recriminations that the national contest was run by incompetence and egomaniacs amply illustrating the downside of social media i mean and there's the that's the first bit of should i read di- the whole thing dis- disingenuousness off? right off the bat mm-hmm. sure go ahead why not this year's brouhaha was kicked off by the posting of a photo taken during judging of a judge holding a model tank and examining the bottom of the model with an iphone flashlight other iphone uh, other smartphones are available Social media exploded with outrage that a judge was touching a model, although the rules clearly say that could happen, or judging the bottom of a tank as though that's not part of the model. Critics flew into a rage over something that's been done at national contests for years, with the usual malcontents, often people who are not and never will be members, including people in other countries who have never been to our event. Thanks for the name check, Chris. Characterising the nationals as a model demolition derby where the judges manhandle all the models. If you've ever judged, you know nothing is further from the truth. Your model will never be treated with greater caution than it will by your fellow modelers. But on social media, people are reading that the IPMS USA Nationals are nothing but an incompetent goat rodeo. That's quite a a fun phrase. Put on by terrible people who want to break your models. That is not the ideal way to attract new members. (laughs) Thinking about the origin of the photo makes me more angry than the social media drivel. That photo was taken during judging, meaning it was taken by a fellow judge. No one else was allowed in the room at the time. There was a moment when the photographer could have made a positive impact on the society. He could have raised an objection about the way the model was handled with the judge, or with the judging team leader, or with the category head judge, or the chief judge of the society. He could have acted like a leader and helped improve something he thought needed to be set right. Instead, he used the photo to whip up anger among the usual malcontents and to paint IPMS in a bad light. Because of this, the person in the picture was accused of being thoughtless and careless and subjected to name-calling, calls for him to be thrown out of the society and even a meme mocking him. As a result, that member has quit IPMS. He volunteered to judge and for his trouble he was run out of the society. Some IPMS members joined in the pig pile. You know who you are and you should be embarrassed at your behaviour. So here's some advice. If you feel something needs to be addressed, talk to people who can do something about it. Your head judge at a local show the president of your club or the correct officer in the IPMS USA. You may not get your way and you may find the issue is addressed in a different way than you first thought it might, but you'll take positive action towards improving the society. What you should not do is utilise social media to foment disunity within the membership and to tarnish the image of the IPMS to other modellers. That accomplishes nothing except to turn members against each other and to drive away modellers who would have benefited from membership in the society. In summary, wait for it, Act like an adult, not a petulant preteen with a smartphone. Wow, the irony is just dripping off of that. <laughs> just like, yeah. oh my god. It's almost like a satire of a letter like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, except, except we know for a fact that he, there was no satire intended. I mean, I gotta give the guy credit. That's a masterclass in 
uh, dishonest argumentation, straw man arguments, ad hominem, and absolute gaslighting. So if that's what he was trying to do, Mm -hmm. hey, bravo, dude, you pulled that off. But the fact is he's full of shit, and everybody pretty much understands that. Uh, I mean, it's just it's just it's just complete nonsense. And what's more disturbing, really, in a way, than the absolute nonsense itself, is that this once again shows that there's there's nobody home. The fact that this guy could publish this horse shit without any checks and balances whatsoever is honestly it's astonishing i mean this this the the ipms journal is published using money that we all pay as in membership dues and the fact that nobody like that there's no oversight i mean this guy has just given the ipms yet another black eye when they were really trying to heal up from the last one and i think it just underscores i i I don't know to me it, it it says two things very clearly one, the IPMS Journal is is long due for a review board. Somebody, a group of competent people need to sit down and assess whether or not this thing is even worth the paper it's published on. Because, look, I'm sure I'm going to get some hate for this, but the thing is just amateurish. And it, it is not, like if I'm going to pick up a magazine, I'm going to pick up Air Modeler or something that's going to inspire me. If I want to be inspired about home building, I'm going to pick up Dwell. If I'm going to be inspired about sports, I'm going to pick up Sports Illustrated. And that's what I want in model making. I want to see really cool shit done by really talented people. And that's just not what the IPMS journal is. And secondly, get rid of this guy. I think it's really important to point out when he says that the person took the photo and posted it on social media instead of doing something about it. No, they didn't. They went to the mm-hmm. category judge yep. who went to the yep. head judge. An absolute falsehood. And the head judge for Armour confirmed at the time, which is now three months ago, that he was approached about it yeah. at the show yeah. during judging. So that's just not true. Yeah. Uh, and it, Now, I know Chris has been confronted about this on his page and basically hasn't acknowledged he's it. Not, hasn't he's not acknowledging, it he's not any acknowledging anything. There, there's, there's, there's no, yeah. no uh, accountability, no... Um, willingness to accept that any part of this might have been poorly thought out whatsoever. He just continues to defend his, you know, defend his position uh, and not uh, in a very honest way either. So, yeah, I, look, this whole thing's a mess. They got they just got to get it cleaned up over there. And hopefully the incoming slate of new officers is going to take this as a leadership opportunity and uh, do the right thing. Yeah, I mean, I think a, a step in the right direction would be to stop producing the journal as a print option and go online. At least review the idea, yeah. Because it's... it's what? At least set up a system for reviewing the content. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, at the, at the risk of, of sounding kind of, uh, I don't know, uh, obvious, like if something like that appears online you can pull it out you can pull it out and you can replace it with something different you can acknowledge it in a way that but more importantly you know one of the complaints that's been raised about the journal is that this this last issue of the journal a lot of the ad space promoting shows these shows had already happened by the time the journal gets in people's hands Mm -hmm. and 
that you know if if you're talking about editing yes the editorial is a problem but also the fact that you're not getting promotional material out for your own shows in a timely fashion so that people know about them and can make plans to attend them is a failing to be fair speaking as someone who's worked in uh, on actual modeling magazines real ones that people pay for um that might not be his fault. He might have submitted his copy months ago. It's up to whoever pays the print. But he's the editor. Yeah, no, the editor doesn't run the magazine. The editor's responsible and again, for the content. If, if it was an online publication, then... Yeah, well, it'd be up it instantly. Would. You would, so, as soon as not done, only would as you as be spending approved, uh, you know, almost nil of IPMS membership money on the journal... Um, it could be put up in a, in a timely enough fashion that promoting these shows gives people enough time to to get them on the calendar and and you know raise awareness and and raise attendance. Um, no, I've actually spoken. No, sorry, go go on, Tracy. I've actually spoken to an IPMS insider. I don't want to say who because I don't want to taint them by um, association with me because I'm not exactly persona grata in the in IPMS USA. Um, but they are looking at reviewing pretty much everything about the magazine so it is being addressed the journal and it is being looked at but uh, they they acknowledge there's a lot there to look at and i think it goes beyond the editorial like you say it's about timely production of issues and and everything else so um it it is something they're looking at and if you want to help or if you have suggestions please do contact one of the executive board i'm sure they'll be happy to hear from you and get your volunteer help to, to do something about it because you know that's how you're positive about something as you volunteer to make it better rather than stirring up old shit three yeah, months later. Exactly. Yep. And I look look, I'm 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 officially about to be in could not possibly care less mode because I'm pretty sure that my IPMS membership expires sometime this week and I'm not renewing. I'm I'm just there's just no incentive. Done. And I'm really tired. Really tired of talking about it. I'm tired of yet another example of of dishonest argumentation, which that's a whole other rant. I just feel like that's one of our greatest problems in society and social media just makes it worse. I just, I'm just, it's just, yeah, I'm just tired. I find it ironic that the article did pretty much everything he accused people on social media of doing, but in print. Yeah, exactly. The social media, yeah. Name calling and rudeness and, you know. Yeah, it's just... Yep, it was just, uh, yeah, it was disingenuous at best. I'm starting to think the reason he doesn't like social media is because people can reply on it. (laughs) (laughs) And on that bombshell. Next then is our uh, feature interview with Rick Lawler. Now, uh, we had a bit of trouble organising this one and a little bit of trouble with people being able to sort of get in and technology and stuff like that. So, uh, at different times in the interview, different people are there. <laughs> at different times, they're not. But Rick was there the whole time, and that's the important thing. Uh, and it's a really right. great interview. I think, you know, we got into some stuff that people don't normally get into when they're interviewing people, you know, just talking about their work and what have you. And it, and it got pretty in-depth. I think it was a good, a good chat. So here we go. Hey Sprue Cutters, it's Chris, and I'm here to tell you all about Tetra Model Works. From 172nd to 135th, from 1700 to 1350, 
Tetra Model Works provides you with all the PE you need for your ship, armor, or aircraft project. Whether you're building a T-62, PLA frigate, or a Royal Navy carrier, Tetra have got the best PE you can find to take your project to the next level. Easy to use, inexpensive, and beautifully packaged, Tetra PE is the best PE I've used, and I can recommend it to everyone. So go to tetramodel.com now to find out what they have and where you can get it. Or go to my store at insidethearmor.com to see what we have in stock. Okay, everybody, welcome to the interview portion of the Sprue Cutters Union. And we are very happy to have with us today the one, the only, the world famous, the Rick Lawler, all the way from Portland, Oregon. How's it going today, Rick? It's going good. That's quite the introduction. I should show up here more often. That makes me feel good. <laughs> Well, it's well-deserved. I don't know that there's anybody out there who's going to be like, Rick who? Uh, you may not be aware of this. Uh, I think you've, you know, I've always known you to be far too modest. You actually have some cred out there in the model-making world. Yeah, well, that's nice to hear, I guess. Um, yeah, just do my thing and whatever <laughs> happens, happens. I, I don't know. When people say something like that, it's like, if you go, yep, then it's like, what an arrogant prick. And if you go, oh, no, I don't. It's a false modesty. Yeah, it's like the ah shucks moment. It's like, what do I do here? <laughs> well, let's, you know, let's, let's just cover a little bit of your creds um, for anybody who doesn't know. Um, I know you've uh, got a YouTube channel that uh, is pretty cool. In fact, I was watching some of your videos just this morning over coffee. Doing research. Got doing research, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Last, last doing, minute, right? Like cramming for the exam. The, and <laughs> Yeah. And, and these guys know. I announced yesterday that I planned to be totally unprepared because I just have had so much going on. But... I, you know, I, 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 uh, I love watching your videos. You do, you know, do, do a great job. Um, you've got that, um, and you've got a Patreon, um, with what looks like quite a few subscribers to that. And, um, you are, and, and correct me if I get this wrong. You're like, uh, you're an AK guy, right? One of those guys. <laughs> One of those guys. And, and I've said that with a lot of love. Yeah, I do, I do work with AK <laughs> and, uh, it, I have for the last, I don't know what it's been, four or five years. Um, yeah, quite and a maybe while. we'll get into this, but I've worked for one of those Spanish companies or another since about 2007, eight, something like that. Well, and I, I hope that you don't get like, this doesn't get old. Um, but I think a lot of people in the model making world know you as the builder, author, producer, whatever you want to call it of, of a diorama called Burden of Sorrow, which I look to me can't be mentioned too many times because I think it's going to always go down as one of the great pieces of art in the model making space. It, uh, you know, and I would encourage, we'll, we'll put pictures of it in the show notes. I would encourage anybody who's never seen it to go have a look. I mean, I feel like you were one of the first guys to really take this thing to a level that nobody had before in terms of, of, I hate to use the term, you know, we've been debating about it lately, storytelling. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and just like I still have never seen a piece from the model making world that hit me in the feels as hard as that piece did. Well, thank you. That's a uh, that means a lot. Um, that means the in- it wasn't even intention, but that means that the effect was was spot on. So I appreciate that. Well, we have a letter that we're going to get into that uh, one of our listeners sent to us. Uh, and we're not going to read the entire thing because it was pretty lengthy, but it was so compelling and it really touched on some of this stuff. And I told Chris and Trace, I was like, hey, man, can we read this letter with, with Rick? Because I just felt like it was, you know, kind of kind of right up your alley. So we could even we could even start with that or whatever. Chris, it's I mean, what do you think? Yeah, start with that. Yeah. This letter is from Sean Moran Richards. And uh, he says, hey, been listening for a while and keeping up with Chris's blog. Hey, glad somebody is. (laughs) Both the show and the blog pretty much always spin me off into some frenzied internal dialogue about what is art, why I love and hate rivet counting, etc. He uh, he says he's in the middle of uh, the SMC episode and his brain immediately sparked off to Chris's attempts to define art. And it made me realize something. What TJ said finally helped me clarify for myself why I hate rivet counting and why I deeply value it as well. The IPMS approach of DQing a piece because the proverbial wheel is out of alignment is infuriating because it's too dogmatic and doesn't account for the work that the piece is trying to do. Now, here's where I have to pause and insert one of my own counterpoints. I think, and he's not the only one, that he's conflating judging based on technique and build quality with rivet counting. And they're definitely not the same thing. Judging is judging. Did you have a seam showing? Did you have a decal silvered? That's not rivet counting. Rivet counting, I think, as we would agree, is, hey, that thing should be a different color or a different shape or whatever, you know, that sort of level of detail. Anyway, He says, what TJ said in my head boils down to the build error, Mr. Riv, it doesn't matter if it doesn't distract from the work. A big scratch across an otherwise clean metallic finish, obviously an error, but it distracts the eye and prevents the audience from appreciating the piece. I get really irritated when I feel that the rivet counting criticism I get is too myopically focused on the modeling part and not the work that I'm trying to do. And he has talked in his letter originally about the idea that the the main purpose of art is to do work. And I I, kind of want to focus on that because that's what made me really think, you know what, I want to have this conversation with Rick. And what, what he says specifically is it's art if it does work. And by work, I don't mean the toil we waste our lives on, nine to five. I mean work as in physics or anthropology, where it talks about a change enacted on the subject. So work is done by Sisyphus on the ball rolled up the hill, or work is in the change in psychology, opinions, and beliefs, or emotional state after watching. So that for me was kind of the key thing, and and, and that's why I felt like it fit so perfectly for you, Rick, because again... Going back to to Burden of Sorrow, that's a piece that does a lot of work. And I just wanted to, you know, kind of throw that out there for you and see what your thoughts were. 
Oh, goodness. There was a lot in that letter. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's pretty dense. Yeah. <laughs> That's half of what was in that letter. Speaking of artwork, um, prose is his forte. Uh, I, I guess, okay, so I understand, I guess, what he's saying about work in the broad sense, you know, a piece of work. Um, I, I will kind of connect that to what was said at the very end in terms of the types of work, which it is an emotional work, at least burden of sorrow is that type of emotional work. Um, and that that's, I think that when we start having, and I know you, like you said, you've mentioned this before, we have, have these conversations from time to time is scale modeling art or whatever. When those intersections happen, when that work becomes an emotional connection with your viewer, then that starts to move to that level of what I would call art. Um, up until then, we're painting plastic toys. Um, and I paint a lot of plastic toys. I very rarely, as as we'll go through this conversation, you know, c- catching that lightning in a bottle is maybe a once-in-a-lifetime event. I happen to be able to catch that lightning in the bottle with Burden of Sorrow, where I believe... And I think um, from what I've, you know, I think that came out in 2012, maybe 14. It still gets talked about. Um, It's still referenced. So I think history has confirmed that there was some lightning in a bottle. There was some emotional impact. There was a touch of art, for lack of a better, in that particular piece. So I get what he's saying. It's, (laughs) it's... And I don't know if I even answered the question properly, but that's kind of, at least in retrospect, kind of how I look at that piece. Well, it was a long question. Uh, Chris, what do you think? I know you have thoughts on it as well. I have to say, there's absolutely nothing wrong with painting plastic toys. I mean, I know you weren't (laughs) saying there was, but I I get the feeling you were being kind of a little bit self-depreciating saying that, self-deprecating that, you know, it's not going to change the world. We're just painting models. There's nothing wrong with that. And I wouldn't want people to think that if it's not art, then it's not okay. No, I can. I, I totally agree with you, Chris, in that that I, I'm not belittling. I'm sitting here making a little 172nd scale tiger tank right now, and I'm going to be painting plastic, and I'm going to be trying to express and convey, um, you know, feeling and aesthetics and all that through that little piece. Will it have the same impact, I guess, is kind of where I was going for. Will this particular piece have that same impact? No, that's not even my attention. It's fine to do both, isn't it, basically? Um, I think I, I actually agree with your definition of, of uh, art in modeling, that if it has to create some sort of emotional impact or maybe intellectual or whatever, but it, it has to cause the viewer to stop for a second and assess what it is they're feeling looking at. Uh, for the benefit of listeners, um, Tracy was having technical difficulties, and he's just managed to join us. Yeah, so we're right Hello. in the middle of of talking about that letter, Tracy, about um, you know Sean's uh, definition of art or his. I just thought, I just thought that what he said about um, art needs to do work. I, I just like, I really liked that. I don't think for me that that's like the only thing that defines art. I still hold true to my idea that um, it, it's something that only the producer knows because 
you have to use specific methods and techniques and knowledge in order to realize a specific creative vision to do the work that you intend to do. And I think that only the really, the only, really the only person that can say whether or not that happened is the person who did it. But we all know that people see, you know, want to say, well, it's, you know, defined by the viewer. And um, I just don't know that I'm ever going to agree with that. Well, you sure. can certainly see art in things that weren't intended, right? You know, I mean, there's the architectural features, like, I remember going into a parking lot and, you know, you pull up and you punch the button for the ticket and it spits out the ticket and the arm goes up. But the font used for the uh, the company that made that little machine was called Cincinnati. It was just so, the font and the color choices with everything were so perfect on this stupid inanimate object Mm -hmm. that I stopped and took a picture of it. Like, there was probably some intent to make something pleasing there, but I doubt they set out to create art or or anything to make you stop and look twice. But it's, you know, right. It's, it's, It's what appeals to you. And all those things that appeal to you get banked away in your memory and they start forming what comes out of you. They start informing like sort of what yeah, more of a sure. style. I that, think there's this tendency to, to sort of separate between things that have utility. Like, you know, if it's a, if it's a tool or a thing that's supposed to do a job, then it automatically can't be art. And I don't, you know, again, I don't know that I can agree with that either. I was watching a thing the other day on YouTube, this uh, woodworking guy, and his stuff was so compelling and his intentions were, I mean, he talked about, he's like, look, what I want is for people to not just come and look at this thing as a place to, to set stuff, but I want them to walk all the way around it and I want them to feel a certain thing. And, I, and, and I'm like, okay, well, all right, that's art. Sure. Yeah, I think you see that same thing. You know, we're talking, when we're talking about everyday things, utility and function, functionally, functioning items. But, you know, perfect example is Apple and their products. They spend a lot of time making functional items at a very high level and just as much time designing the product itself so that is a piece of furniture at less you know but perhaps even artistic expression at the most in terms of some of the beauty and the grace of some of these products that they put out yeah there's yeah there's a lot of intent with the design right they they intend for what they put out to be harmonious with all the other products that they make and they do that with color choices and stylistic choices and things like that. But also it sets them apart from a competitor. And, and it's funny that you mentioned Apple because we're, you know, in my mind, we were talking about inanimate objects and how they, most of the time it's their functionality, which is their appeal, right? It's If it does a job really well, like, you know, if you've got a, a, a table saw that um, because of the features designed into it does a job slightly better than most other table saws and there's there's suddenly an appeal to that for people to use it but i feel like apple from the very beginning like their first iphone when it came out it was intentionally different it was intentionally aesthetically 
pleasing. So yeah, I mean they put yeah. time and effort into that sort of stuff. Um, not the <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's get it back to scale modeling, shall we? Yeah. So, well, uh, it all it all came from this letter and the idea that the, of of art doing work, and I just like the way he put that. It just really kind of struck me, and I thought it was a very cool letter. But you know, I certainly don't want to spend the entire our entire chat on that. So, Rick. You mentioned that now you said these ideas are like lightning in a bottle and come along very infrequently. How do you, so do you have to wait for an idea before you can do something like that? Do you have to kind of just hope inspiration comes along or do you set out to make something and then kind of put it together from there? Uh, yeah. So for me or both, and this is with all my modeling, a lot of it is, um, in the moment, kind of organic as it comes. I don't necessarily do a lot of pre-planning. Burden of Sorrow in particular was a very specific, emotional, directed type of scene. So I, I had had the idea, and this, again, this came out back in the day, so we're all back on the early internet. This is missing links types of time. and But I'd had this idea of doing something around... Uh, the Holocaust um, for for some time, knowing full well that that subject in and of itself is somewhat taboo. You know, you just don't go into certain sorts of of subjects because they're controversial for sort for lack of a better word. And and I wasn't necessarily ready to do it um, either. I I didn't have quite figured out how I would present it. If, if I were to even go down that path. But I went to um, AMPS in Virginia and I took an extra day and I was staying overnight and I was flying out of um, Washington, D.C. So I went to the Smithsonian to the Holocaust Museum and it was the second time I'd been there. But the first time I was with a family, we went fairly quickly through. This time I did it by myself. And that gave me the time to really be a part of the museum and when I got up to the, I think it's the third level, and you walk down the ramp and you go into that train car and they come out and then you have that smell of all the, sh they have all these shoes behind this kind of plexiglass uh, wall there. And the entire place smells of old leather and old shoes. That was the moment when I said, I need to figure out how to do something about about this subject. I need to figure out how to, how to do it. So that became the motivation to... Let's bring it to the forefront. Let's figure out how to how to make this happen. Coincidentally, this is where the lightning in the bottle kind of concept starts coming through. Uh, Libor with LZ Models, within a month, came out with the rail car, a resin rail car, back in the day. And I, because up to then there was no German rail car, and so you know I was toying with the idea of scratch building or what the scene would look like, what needed to happen. That rail car came out. And all of a sudden, it just coalesced. I knew what the scene was going to be now. The rail car was going to be the center of the scene. It needed to be um, capture because I just walked through that rail car. And so it needed to capture that, that rail car and somehow capture the surroundings, the, the smells, the experience of walking through that museum and, and, and everything that goes around you know, that, that museum and what it represents. Um, so now I had the vehicles, quote unquote, to, to pull it together. I had a focal point, I had an idea, 
and now I could start make it to come come to fruition. Um, but I couldn't force that, you know, because I, like I said, I'd had that in my mind to do something around this for a long time. Um, but there's a lot of inhibitors until everything started to kind of come together. Unlike a lot of dioramas and, and the stuff that we see, even at the best shows, I mean, this is this is something that has to be handled with real sensitivity uh, in order to 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 be respectful and to convey what you're trying to convey without being garish um, or flippant. You know, I mean, there's there are a lot of considerations to tackling a project like this, and it's it's a lot different than you know. Uh, you know, building a, you know, a, a tiger tank with a bunch of guys standing on it pointing. Like, it's it's kind of a next level project when it comes to what you have to. Yeah, and I was I was fully aware of, of all those, of all of that. Um, you know, there was even back in the day, people would do you know, even start touching on sort of, sort of these subjects, and and it would roundly get criticism. You know, that's, that's gross. That's, you know, we don't portray that, you know, scale modeling. I think, I think the barriers have come down somewhat, but it was very much just about the model. Like you said, Tracy, the, the tiger tank with the commander pointing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but to actually tackle the realities of what our subjects often touch on the, you know, the brutality of it all, um, that is that was like that fourth dimension. That was that wall that no one really had approached before that. I had never heard that story of how you, of how the idea came about. And what strikes me, and I think this is really cool, and it fits in with some stuff that we kind of got into on our last conversation, um, is that, you know, most of us pick a vehicle and we like it for whatever reason. And maybe we try to turn that into some kind of art by expressing ourselves through the paint and the weathering, whatever, or we make it, or it becomes the focal. It's, it's part of a, of a diorama. Oh, I'm going to make a diorama with a bulldozer in it, but it starts with the vehicle and kind of goes outward from there. But you started with the concept, like you weren't even in a model making sort of context, like not even in that, like really frame of mind, I guess you you just saw something in real life that conceptually you felt needed or deserved to be expressed. And then you used your medium that you're good at those skills and knowledges and all the things to develop that. And and that kind of, to me, like takes it to another level. Yeah. I think that's, that's accurate uh, way of kind of describing my path through this. Um, you know, to, to say that I intentionally went to make burden of sorrow is not accurate to say that it started with a base level kind of be you know back of my head sort of an idea theme if you will um, and then like I said before all these things started kind of accumulating until the time was right to actually express it in in the modeling. I think for something with any kind of real meaning to it, you have to start with something you want to say or something you want to talk about and then the modeling comes after that then you decide what fits with what you want to say if you try and start with the model and then try and put something into it that says something it kind of feels a bit like you're pushing it onto the model just to make it 
more than it is, really. Yeah, I would agree with that. But it's a natural thing, right? Because we are, you know, we're model makers because we like the things that we choose to make models of. And uh, so it's sort of natural that it happens that way. But I think you're right, Chris, that, I mean, because that's a spectrum, right? Like, Rick, you mentioned it before. If all you're doing is taking the thing off of the, out of the box, assembling it and painting it according to the color callout sheet, that's not really a creative expression, in my opinion. You're just reproducing something. And that's cool. That's totally fine, right? If that's your deal. Then cool. Do that. But the more you start to go over into, okay, I want to try and tell some sort of a little narrative here. I'm trying not to to use storytelling because (laughs) we've talked about it so much. But whatever, even if it's this little micro historical narrative of, oh, this thing was, or like what Chris has been doing with stuff that got burned up in a fire because, you know, it got blown up in in the war in Ukraine, right? It's that pushes you further and further over towards the side of the spectrum where it truly becomes art. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. Well, you, you put something of yourself into it, right? Because otherwise, you know, like you said, yes, there, there are a whole host of people who can buy a model, open the box, build it per the instructions, paint it per the instructions and have a well-built model. But unless unless you modify something along the way, all you've done is, is basically build a model out of the box and paint it. There's no expression of your own creativity, right? So in lieu of the word storytelling, you can say like your creativity comes to be expressed with the way you finish it. If you're with your weathering and all that stuff, I mean, you don't necessarily have to tell the story of the tank, quote unquote, but, but that's where you start, introducing your own sort of personal creativity into the project. So that's kind of where it starts, right? That's where the, that's as simple as it needs to be to start. I remember like you're doing something. This is back when I first started working. I was in Spain with um, Meg Productions and Miguel and I were talking one day in, in the offices there and he we're kind of having the same conversation, but basically he was just stating, you know, there's diorama builders, which I think is kind of what we're talking about here. Diorama builders, in his opinion, are the highest level of modeling because you are incorporating all the things you need to do in order to build a good model, just out of the box per se, or as you will. But then you have all these other components to go with it. And then if you are successful in your diorama building, you're telling that narrative or the storytelling, whatever the, whatever the words that we can't use here. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, when all those things come together, uh, that's when you can actually transition from a great diorama or a good diorama or good modeling into maybe art because that story, that narrative then transcends um, the individual pieces and, of whatever you're putting together. But even before you get to that transitional period, um, the diorama as as a, a modeling uh, feature, I guess, that that really coalesces all of our skills. And, and so for people who who dabble or concentrate or whatever on building dioramas, those are the people who are 
and and I, I I'll say it for myself. I learn something every time I do a diorama. You know, whether it's a little piece of groundwork and how to do it better or how to integrate things together. So you're really pushing all your skill levels, all your skill set, including that storytelling part, um, every time you work on a diorama. Yeah, absolutely. And they don't even have to be super complex to do that. Like Chris, I, I know you may dispute this, but like you, the two pieces that you took to scale model challenge, you had one that was very complex. I mean, it wasn't complex, but it was, it was complicated. You had what, four or five armored vehicles? There was vehicle? a lot on it. It was yeah, a lot. There was four or figures, five, you know, yeah, a bunch yeah. of armored vehicles, bunch of, of figures. And then your other one was literally two people. Two guys, two soldiers. Um, but they both, at least in my opinion, told a very easily understood story. And I absolutely think both of those pieces were way over on the art end of the spectrum. I, I think you, you know, you've talked a lot about wanting to make your stuff have more of a statement to it than just, you know, tank on a plank for lack of a better term and i think you pulled it off with both of those ironically i think the bigger one it succeeded on its own terms but the smaller one was more successful because it had a far more concentrated emotional it, it was it was very yeah yeah I mean, there were different was, kinds of things you know well and you showed that you can tell you can you can you can make a very simple very small piece do a lot of work emotionally. I mean, it, you know, you all, you didn't have to look at that thing very long to get hit in the feels with what was happening there. Even without though the story element, dioramas are far more technically challenging because I mean, it, a lot of people spend a lot of time getting very good at building vehicles, weathering vehicles and so on. But then to do a good diorama, really, you have to learn also how to paint figures very well and how to maybe adapt figures and change figures. Then you have to also learn groundwork. It is a lot, a lot bigger, a lot wider uh, technical challenge to making a diorama than there is to just making a single figure or a vehicle or, or whatever. Yeah. Right, and I think that's what Brick is talking about. Like, every time you sit down to do one, you're learning something new. Like, you're refining your skills because we've seen a lot of people who, who not necessarily we've seen people, but we've seen a lot of examples of um, a really well-built tank that took months, you know, uh, like a four month tank on a, on a three day plank. Like you did all this work on the, the vehicle and you did such a nice job at the vehicle. And then you just kind of throw it on some, some static grass. I love those. Down and, and <laughs> it like, like someone parked their tank on someone's look. lawn because they're always perfectly <laughs> manicured like a golf course. <laughs> this static grass is all the same height. <laughs> well, and, or if they have any higher grass, it's, it's clearly <laughs> a, a paintbrush yeah. that's been cut down, like, yeah. which miraculously <laughs> grew around the tank, not underneath it at all. So, I mean, they're, yeah, I mean, you, if you if you're going to attempt to do dioramas, I think you have to take every element seriously and you have to to observe how people who are very good at it do it, observe how the real world looks and how you want to replicate it the same way you observe the real world and how to replicate it with weathering. 
But then, you know, you do one, you get kind of addicted. And then your next one, you're like, I want to convert a figure for this one. Like, I want I want more interaction between the, the figures. And, like, you you really do. You start honing your, your skills every time you sit down to do it, whether by ambition or repetition. Either way, it's, you know, you're going to well, And you're definitely doing that. I just want to make it clear that I felt the same way about your piece with the, you know, with the tank and the scrapyard and the two cats it's a more prosaic scene. It doesn't maybe carry the political and emotional punch that Chris's pieces did, but it's still a, a, I mean, you're still telling a little, a little story there. You know, you still used all the things and look, I mean, if, 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 if uh, one of the Dutch masters painted a scene of a guy sitting on a rock feeding a couple of cats, we wouldn't say, well, that's not art because it's a prosaic scene. So I don't think there's any discounting what you did there either. It all depends on the intent, right? Like, I think, you know, Chris had the intent of making an impact, like a an emotional impact. Mine was like, okay, I want to really focus and, and start honing my skills in composition and directing the eye and, like, making something that is interesting – and well done from every angle. Like it was, I had smaller goals and I just wanted to, to hit those goals. And I created a scene. I created a, a scene that if, if I don't know that it's a diorama or even a vignette, cause it doesn't tell much of a story, but it's a really well composed, well executed. It absolutely scene, is. And I mean, it, exactly I mean, what I wanted let's to be do. honest, what percentage of painting and photography over the centuries has been exactly that creating a scene i can create a scene anywhere <laughs> <laughs> usually at model shows. Make, make, making a scene it's a different thing <laughs> rick uh, i want to go back to something you said earlier you said that um subjects like burden of sorrow are controversial why do you think they're controversial in modeling because i mean What's something people always like to say whenever there's any criticism thrown around about their panzers or whatever is, it's history. You know, I'm just honouring history. Mm -hmm. But quite a lot of the time, I think modelling sanitises history. It shows a very non-violent, quite pacific and quite attractive vision of war. Why do you think the darker side is so controversial? Um, Because it's uncomfortable. I think it makes you... It makes us um, take a look at ourselves and, and question perhaps why we are attracted to, say, the glamorous side, you know. And so, um, you know, everybody loves a good tiger tank in a black panzer uniform because they look really, really cool. But that level below that is not nearly so attractive. And so it, it's... I think it's, there's a, a kind of a self-editing buffer someplace in there, which people just say, you know, we're, we're, we're showing history in terms of the vehicle and the uniforms and this and that. Glamorize it, for lack of a better word, but we don't show the consequences. And that's where Burden of Sorrow went in a very deep way, is to show the consequences of not just the Tiger Tank, but a regime um, which which you know takes it to 
you know, much broader, broader scope. Um, so what, you know, I, I don't know. That's, that's my short answer, I guess. Um, I also think that, and we've kind of touched on this earlier. I think Will might've said this. Uh, it is very difficult to portray, and I'll use the term specifically, the horrors of war without being overt or grotesque in doing that. And that's, that's a very difficult line to, 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 to follow um, in terms of being able to capture the, the essence of the scene, to show the emotion, to give, to still tell the story without it just being a huge mess, um, aesthetically, physically, visually, not portrayed well, whatever, however you want to say that. So that's that. That's the other challenge in terms of all that past getting our own filters out of the way. In terms of how now do we actually do this, and that that makes it much more tougher of a of a realm to push our modeling into. Yeah, I'd say that's true. I mean, I, I think it also takes the ability to to work with implication rather than just outright visuals, you know, like if you're, I feel like there's very few successful portrayals of the horrors of war, but the ones that are successful are not the ones with uh, plastic figures painted with red paint on their uniforms lying around. Like it, it's not, that's, that's too, too easy. Yeah. Yeah, it's too simple, right? It's too it's the if you really want to you can do a better job by showing less. You can if you've got a a burned up tank just having a kind of a burnt hand hanging out of a partially open hatch. Like that's that tells you everything you need to know, but it's done in a way that's just well, and I think you know, and you, you're, you're hitting a point that I, Tracy, that when we move into those subjects or any subjects, this goes back to even to dioramas and such, the biggest tool that we have as a modeler, as a presenter of our work is actually the mind's eye of the viewer. So we don't necessarily have to tell the entire story. We don't have to put every detail out there. We have to start the paragraph and allow them to fill in the verse behind that. Um, so like you said, you know, you can only, if you show just maybe a hand, well, the imagination of, you know, the theater of the mind takes over from that point. So you don't have to be gross and gory and horrific in terms of what really happened there in terms of actually modeling that. You just have to kind of lend them kind of to tell themselves that story. And they, they'll, they'll fill in the blanks. Every time, and and what's really nice, and this I think was where we start getting into the art part of it. If that's done well, if you've given them that little bit of a teaser at the beginning, each viewer is going to have a different experience. So when they look at that, you know, Chris will have one vision in his head, and Will will have another vision in his head, and Tracy will have another vision in his head, and they will be unique, but they will also be within theme, and so. You could take it as, you know, so I think that's, that's kind of where that line also kind of comes and goes there. 
you make a, a strong point though, Chris, because I, you see it like, you know, model makers will try and depict something like that and you'll get these reactions and there's going to be some guy who says, well, that's just distasteful and been bad, you know, just it's, it's bad taste and you just shouldn't do that. And then he'll turn around and, and, and build a model of the Enola Gay. I think a lot of the times it's a bit of a fig leaf. We, we, give ourselves that we're just building a machine it's just technical history you know yeah. it's just something that looks like the machine and that's all, okay and everything yeah. all too easy to forget or ignore what those machines were used for well when people complain about swell stickers on models uh you know where facebook bans it and they go well it's part of history it's like, yeah but you only show one part of history yourself you leave out quite a lot of the rest of it you know, and this is why history isn't taught by models. History is taught by books generally, except models like uh, Burden of Sorrow, which uh, actually I think, you know, kids should see, you know, things like that. Because like, it would, it's as you were saying, Rick, it's the kind of thing that sparks a conversation and sparks thoughts rather than just um, something you look at and you go, oh, yeah, I get that. You look at it and it, it for someone who doesn't know it, the whole story of it, they should surely have questions about why has this guy got this barrow full of clothes and, you know, what's going on here. And and it, from that then, they'll go and find out and then they'll learn more about it and that's how history is told. It's not told by this is what a tiger tank looked like. You know, if you like to build tanks because they look cool, just own it. Just I mean, there's no problem with that. Just say, I like them, they look cool. You don't have to say, well, it's, it's history. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So, Rick, there's been, uh, uh, you may have heard, um, you know, that there's been some discussion lately on the topic of uh, innovation in scale modeling. Some some guy made a video. A yep. Let me get my helmet. <laughs> Incoming. Some, <laughs> some guy made a video not too long ago claiming that uh, uh, at Scale Model Challenge, there just wasn't any innovation and that everything everybody did 10 years ago was much better. So I'm curious, as a guy who did a groundbreaking thing in scale modeling, legitimately, no argument there. Um, I, I think you've got the creds to speak on this topic. What do you see as the state of scale modeling and what do you see as the next thing? What's you know What, what represents innovation to you? Oh, well, as the president would say at the State of the Union, the state of the union is good or something like that. The state of modeling is good. (laughs) Um, You know, just get that out of the way. Scale modeling is here to stay. It's not going to go anywhere. It evolves. It changes. It does what it does. You know, it could be Gundam's Warhammer, whatever the case may be. Just leave it alone. It's it's all scale modeling. Um, Where's it going? You know, that that's that's the hard part, you know, so I don't know what certain people's expectations might be when they go to a show like that uh, to SMC this past last month. I was talking with both of you, uh, Tracy or not Tracy, um, Will and and Chris before we kind of got on air is that I was at World Model Expo last year with Chris and Tracy. And so many of the same models were at World Model Expo as we're at SMC. So I have a pretty good feeling of what was on the tables. I've seen them in real life. Um, the caliber of, of work being done and presented 
at World Model Expo and at SMC, I presume, is absolutely top-notch. And I don't mean to direct this necessarily towards the video. I was also at Euromilitaire in 2006 when Phil introduced his Panzer IV with the hairspray chipping. So when we talk about innovation, that was innovation, okay? Now it's, what, 14 to 24, so that's 10 years, 2006 to whatever. So we're, we're 10 years down the road, or 20 years down the road. Yeah. 2006 what? to 2016 yeah, we're, to 2026. We're, we're not very good at yeah. math on we're, this we're about, show. We're all men of a certain <laughs> age, and after the year 2000, it's all like I got to pull out my calculator. So we're 15 years. We're 15 years down the road, basically, from when Phil we're introduced uh, hairspray. Totally an innovation. Okay. Then the products come out, and then everybody gets used to doing it, and everybody starts copycatting it, and they all look great. Will, you brought ready to say something. What are you going to say? Well, I just, I, you know me, I like to I like to just make sure our, our listeners get the context. So, and I hope I say this right, Phil Stutsinkas, is that to say that right? Close enough. He's the guy, he's the guy that as far as we know, invented the hairspray chipping technique, correct? Yeah, yeah. And his model was finished beautifully at one best of show that year at your military. So in terms of innovations, that is innovation. Now, this goes back to the lightning in a bottle comment I made earlier. You can't set out to innovate necessarily. Um, so much of it is evolution. And that's was, I think, somewhat of the undertone of the fallout of the video is, you know, I, I can't sit here on my bench and decide, well, I'm going to invent a brand new technique today or use, you know, peanut butter to, to chip my models or something like that. <laughs> you know, it, it happens because uh, you have an idea and you're trying to figure out how to capture a look or a feel or whatever it might be. And, and so you start experimenting or whatever. And in this case, hairspray, who would have thunk, is, is a great medium to do that sort of thing. I don't know if I'm answering your question. Um, so where, where are we, where are we now? I think we're in a really, really good place. I think that was part of your question. I think we're in a really, really good place. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 I watched all the comments. I watched the video. I watched the comments. Um, I have some very strong feelings, <laughs> but, and, and I think a lot of it was expressed by a lot of the comments, <laughs> which said that in 2006, the good old days, the quote unquote missing links days and everything else there were only a handful of top tier modelers in the subsequent years. We have all gotten better as a group in terms of how we build models, the tools we use, the finishes we use, the execution that we all do together. So there is a much denser clumping at the top levels of modeling right now. And I think you guys at SMC just saw that we can go from, model to model to model and each one is absolutely breathtaking and brilliant and you go like i wish i could do that i think it's absolutely true and i think it's i think it's true of pretty much everything in life i mean people complain about how boring cars are these days well i remember the days of the camaro the muscle car yeah well they were cool there were a few all these cars are so good now and design is so good now i mean i see it everywhere food music 
television production we're just better at everything because we know more uh, I, I mean that's my opinion about how, about it yeah and sometimes someday somebody's going to come from some little workbench whatever going to put a plop down a model on facebook or wherever or at some show and that will be the revolutionary thing that someone does you know he's just sitting by himself solving that problem for himself and that will be the new thing or technique that everybody like oh my goodness how do, how do you do that and and that will be a revolutionary thing we're in an evolutionary period right now there's nothing wrong with that absolutely well you've been pushing into some new territory yourself though right because um like what i was watching on your youtube channel this morning you have just completed your first machine and krieger project <laughs> yeah um as, as i was saying to somebody the other day um I think I'm going through a midlife crisis. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think middle-aged men play with plastic yep. toys. You, you that boat, we're already there. No, I, I've had a good time. Um, it's really been since uh, maybe the middle of summer, early summer. I've, I've done a Gundam. I've done the Machine and Krieger. I've done a Star Wars thing, um, A-Wing. I did a couple, yeah, the facades um, part yeah. Of yeah, that group build. so I've been coming more involved in those types of activities, more those types of subjects, getting a little bit away from my traditional armor, um, and it's it's been a really nice, a really nice break. I don't even know if break. It's just been a nice expansion of of what I'm working on and going back to you know kind of pushing yourself in different directions. Um, each of those subjects kind of make make you force you. You have the opportunity to uh, try out some new techniques, especially when you go to the sci-fi fantasy sort of world. It's like, uh, it doesn't have to be brown. It could be blue. It could be green. It could be whatever. Yeah, I loved the camouflage on your, uh, it's a Luna Gans, right? It's camel, yeah. Camel, yeah. Uh, I, I just thought the camouflage was super cool. And I, I loved the, uh, the way you used foil for that, tank or whatever the thing is on the on the back of it uh, i just thought overall it was really well done and i uh, i mean are you going to do more is that going to is it going to be a one and done kind of thing or are you going to keep keep on with machine and krieger oh there is definitely another one coming can't really get into it right now <laughs> but there is one coming this was a warm-up for some, this is a warm-up for something man. else that's coming down the line i'll just leave it there <laughs> So that get that cool. Lincoln's got a new book then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Uh, I, I'm a firm believer that um, people should model everything. That they shouldn't just stick with one genre or one scale. They should do everything and try everything. Do you think doing the sci-fi and branching out has informed your armor modeling? Do you think it's improved your armor modeling? Yeah, I do. Um, because as I mentioned. Well, so part of part of the uh, backup slightly part of the impetus just to kind of move into these other ideas, these other these other subjects was, you know, you you get into especially when you're on a video schedule or you're on a book schedule or something like that. You're just building models and building models and building models, and you really do. I do anyway. Get into a routine, a rut, if you will. You know, here I'll pull out my oil paints. I'll pull out this. I'll do this, and it's the same rote routine every time. And and so that creative part that we've been kind of dancing around here really doesn't come into play because I need to get a finish and I need to get a finish that's good 
in a short amount of time or as quickly as possible. These have allowed me to and somewhat forced me to use different products, different ideas, um, look for different references. You know, like the little foil thing that Will just mentioned on that top, you know, that literally was, I wake up in the middle of the night and we're like, oh, shoot, I should look at the Apollo moon landings and see kind of what coloring that they used for those. Whether it's Stanley Kubrick did it on a soundstage or they actually made it to the moon is another story. But, you know, you know, they, they used mylar and, and that was, that was cool. Um, and I thought, oh, I need, I need to add that here someplace. Um, so those kind of just that, that's the part I really enjoy is, you know, in the evening looking for different references other than, you know, World War II black and white photographs. Now I'm looking at Apollo and NASA and, you know, SpaceX and everything else just to kind of get that sort of thing, looking at sci-fi movies, um, some of the spaceships from the expanse or things, something like that, just to kind of get some kind of creative juices going. Uh, so yes, that does translate back to your original point. It does translate back to my armor as well, or I, I should say it will. Um, I haven't really moved back <laughs> since I've been playing with this midlife crisis into armor much, but I know it will because now I, I feel like I have a few more arrows in my quiver. I think that's it. I think you pick up different tools, techniques, and different appreciations of color and things like that as well. And uh, uh, it's just all more tool. I mean, would you want to sit there with four paints and mix every color you need out of the four? Tracy probably can. And mix every color that you need out of those four paints. Or would you like to have lots of different paints and different shape brushes and different tool so that when you want a certain color or tool or whatever, you can just grab it? It's just it just gives you more tools to play with, basically. Well, I think you know you brought up color, and I just popped over and looked at um, mm. the little camel that Rick built, which I love. But also, like I get it, I understand how like working on something like that, you're dealing with non-military colors, so you're that gets your brain working on how to harmonize. Even if you already know how to harmonize your military colors, your German three tones or your your allied olive drabs and blacks and things like that, if you know how to harmonize those things and work with those colors, then suddenly you're you're working with a different set of colors and yeah, the techniques are kind of the same, but you have to make different informed choices. So like even even in the skill set that you might already have, you're stretching it. You're expanding it, and and I think whenever you come back to, you know, a German three tone or a, 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 a Allied olive drab and whatnot, you're you just have a better understanding of. Well, what for instance, on the camel with, there, like how far you. So I started out with this blue kind of themed camouflage, which was painted and repainted, I think, four different times. So thank you very much. But I wanted those bright stripes on those those ID markers, and this is where kind of pushing things and understanding color like you're talking about tracy you know i know that orange is a complementary color to to uh, blues so i knew that those two colors would work well together now that is i kind of had to look it up i had to go look at a color wheel but just to make sure but that's the kind of thing that i can now bring back to armor it's like okay i want to add that those little bright you know highlight spots that we all like to do with primer or whatever it might be is there a way i can add a bright spot or pop of color that's not traditional to the primer, but is complementary to the base colors in a different way. Yeah, and you can push your your even the colors that you have on a model. You can push them 
one direction or the other and get a little bit of a different effect. And, and, you know, I, for me, I love seeing stuff like that because, you know, you're playing with, you're not just playing with color, but you're also playing with like how to direct the eye on a vehicle. Like you're bringing attention to certain areas and you can do that so subtly that the people viewing it don't even realize mm-hmm. what you've done. But yeah. Understanding your colors, you can definitely force the eye to, yeah. to stop. Yeah, you, you really found the intersection of looks cool, pleasing to the eye, and yeah, that could actually happen. Uh, which to me, that's that's the goal. That's my that's my favorite thing. But I'm curious. Um, you know, the one of the things with machining Krieger in Japan is, um, and you 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 airbrushed all of the stuff on on the camel, and it looks amazing, but. In Japan, there's a thing where they hand brush lacquers, and I don't have to explain any to any of you guys <laughs> what the challenges are there, but it it they do it, and it produces a very unique and cool look. Are you going to try that at all? Uh, this is where we can't talk about what's coming up next. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, and that's the end yeah, of this no, interview. No, no, there no, we no. go. Um, <laughs> Let's just put, this, put it this way. I have I have um, an opportunity to collaborate with with someone or some buddies, and they've asked me to do something basically in my style, not necessarily try to replicate that machine and Krieger style of the lacquers and things like that. So bring my own approach to that world. So I kind of leave it there. Well, it's I'm now I'm really curious to see what you do. I think it's gonna be it's gonna be cool. I tried to do the lacquer hand brush thing on one of my machine and Krieger projects, and it's such a weird thing because you know that lacquers are gonna reactivate each other, and that's part of why it produces that tonal variety. But it you know can also get you into trouble really quick, and I it's 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 a, it's it's an interesting technique. I want to try it again sometime. Yeah, it is an interesting technique and like you said very volatile in terms of trying to produce it. But you know, talk about the innovation and and where new ideas come from. So that it's not a new idea, but it's something that's not very well used at least in our part of the world like the western modeling world. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. but that could be a technique that we could start putting in in certain locations on our own models that would give it that little bit of a different like dare I say push into a different direction. And one thing in that you reminded me of this when you mentioned that is one of the things that I have found just through accident as much as anything else is the combination of oils and acrylics together. So for instance, I could paint something with a base color, give it a wash of like um, odorless thinner, and then paint it with an overdone uh, over that with the acrylic paints. Well, now you have that oil and vinegar sort of thing. So it's all beaten up and everything else. Mm, But once everything dries, now you have all sorts of nice little speckles and spots and this and that that's very, very organic. So I've been playing with that a little bit here. It works really good for if you're going to do your jerry cans or something like that. shows the rust or your exhaust. Mm -hmm. It's really good for those situations. I want to try to figure out how to expand that a little bit more to more applications. But, you know, those were the – but that's not a new technique. It's just kind of evolutionary. It's actually an accident because I have a 
you know, a bottle of thinner and a bottle of water sitting here on my desk and I dip my brush into the wrong thing at the wrong time and I'm like, oh shit. And then all of a sudden I wait for the results to dry and it's like, oh, this is actually pretty cool. Yeah, it's a key point. I mean, Tracy and I kind of got it into this conversation in the last episode we were talking about when I was with my jerry cans, I was having trouble with the chipping. So I started just spraying them with lacquer thinner and IPA and it did some really weird and cool things to the paint. And it's, I think the, the what you're really talking about is taking something that would normally be considered a problem and turning it into a technique. Right. Yeah. Just kind of figuring out how to control it is, is what it comes down yeah. to. <laughs> tame it. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least, yeah. Or at least make it look like you tame it. Yeah. <laughs> But I mean, that's what happens half the time. You do something and you think, oh, that's not done what I expected. But then you think, well, how can yeah. I use that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's like we were talking about with the um, rubbing IPA over lacquer. And it doesn't remove the paint, but it removes the pigment. Like it creates this really cool washed out thing. Like that, it didn't serve me uh, any purpose on what I was doing when I discovered that, but part of me was like, Oh, okay. Keep that in the back of your head. Like maybe that'll work out and and you could do something cool with it. Yeah. Sometimes throwing solvents at a, at the backside of something. Surprising (laughs) results. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, if the worst thing you're going to have to do is repaint it, then you may as well like, might as well play, see, fuck, fuck around and find out. Absolutely. Yeah. A little bit, you know, (laughs) Well, I think everybody yeah. should build Machine and Krieger. I just, they're one of my favorite things. I, the aesthetic is super cool. The whole story behind how it, ha- you know, came about is super cool. But it also kind of is, is a bummer because there's only, there's not very many of them. I mean, if you take the entire catalog of, of models and vehicles, there's just not very many. And I keep wishing that somebody would either come up with like a, you know, a, a product line extension or a new machining Krieger, so to speak, a new universe, a new storyline. Um, but that's, yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult thing to do. Mm-hmm. Rick, you also, uh, very well known for your videos. Uh, I don't know if people realize just how much work goes into keeping up a schedule and producing the videos. How, how much do you put into each video you make? How many hours do you think it takes to produce? Just the production. Well, not including the filming, I guess we're talking about. <laughs> when I first started, it was... Uh, so I came into this brand new and I didn't even want to do videos. But it was, you know, we were at COVID. The company I was working for went out of business. And my my boys basically said, you know, you're already you know, taking pictures of all your stuff for the magazines. Why don't you just start shooting videos and putting them on YouTube? I had no idea how to do that. So in the beginning, I would spend maybe four days in production because I had no idea what I was doing. Um, I quickly outgrew uh, iMovie software. Okay, well, I got to bounce. Chris will have to figure out how to edit this. I have a hard stop, unfortunately, in a few minutes. But, Rick, it's been great to get a chance to hang out with you again. I know uh, we, we only got to spend a little bit of time at the, at the national thing in San Marcos. You helped me commit a robbery. I've told that story before. But uh, at any rate, it's always fun, man. We'll definitely have to have you on again. Yeah, I appreciate it. 
All right. Well, you guys carry on. I'm out. See ya. Uh, so, but luckily I've learned my way through this. I've gotten better software and I've gotten much quicker at it. So now I will, f my usual routine is to film uh, basically all week. So, and then on Friday is the day that I'll actually put everything together. So that's when I'll take all my videos that I've I'll put them in folders throughout the week, um, the video, video clips. And then on Friday, I'll do a, a rough timeline just of the videos, get those all set up. And generally by the afternoon, I'm ready to go ahead and do a voiceover on those. And oftentimes I'll leave it at that. Um, and then throughout the weekend, I might just, you know, spend a little, little bit more time, you know, editing the, the video and the voice to make sure everything looks good, adding all the, the graphics. Uh, lately, I've been adding quite a bit more music. You saw like at the Machine and Krieger added um, some extra footage at the very end, this kind of little teaser, set the scene sort of videos and stuff like that. Um, so, you know, really maybe about 12 hours of, of video editing all together um, in order to produce something that's about 18 to 22 minutes long. I don't know why. <laughs> I don't know. It's a severe investment. And probably, if you're editing it down to that, I would imagine 40, 45 minutes of video maybe recording it. Yeah, it, it depends. I, I When I first started working on doing the videos, I had all these, you know, in my mind, I was going to use two cameras, get different angles, and that just became un, unwieldy right off the bat. I had too much footage. I had too trying to go through that. Of course, I was still learning how to do it as well. Um, I'm pretty good now where... It's just kind of click on, I get to a section that I want to capture, click it on, film it, click it off. So I've got a lot of like 30 seconds, 40 seconds, one minute videos that are just little small sections. And that becomes the timeline as I start putting those together. I feel like I would just get carried away with modeling and forget That's to happened. turn it off or, or turn it on. That's happened. Well, you know, the interesting thing is, uh, yeah. and I don't know. Chris, you probably have done this because you do a lot of magazine work. So maybe you're not. Maybe it's mm -hmm. just unique to me. But having done so many magazine articles over the years, I find myself in a in a kind of habit of working for a section, like putting together a section, and then feeling like I need to pause because that would be the point where I would take it over to the photo booth, take a photograph, come back, work some more, take it to the photo booth. So I get in this, this yeah. pattern of only working like 15 minutes at a time because I'm you put together or paint or whatever, some small section. And then you get up, you walk around, you take your photograph, you come back, you set up for the next, the next shot or the next, you know, build the next sequence out. And so the video has followed much that same sort of a pattern. So I, I kind of have this habit of doing that at the same time now, because this is kind of that same routine about every 15 minutes, I'm turning on the camera and taking a, a shot of, of the section that I'm working on. It's a, it's all good until you forget to film or photograph something and you carry on and then you think, oh, this, this, like on the um, the latest thing I did with all the vehicles, I didn't do anything about the road wheels on the T72. Luckily, there was a couple of spare road wheels in the kit. So I actually ended up making two other road wheels just to photograph for them, even though they were never on the finished tank. And it's, it, you know, because you know there are certain things you have to hit in a book or in a video or what have you for it to be not just how to draw a horse here's the tail here's the rest of the fucking horse yeah you know to, you have to show how you got there and when you miss it, it it's a really annoying you have to go back and basically 
fake it because <laughs> because you missed it. And um, it's annoying though because at the same time I kind of feel like books and what have you become formulaic because of that because they're the beats everyone expects you to hit. And there's a yeah. I always worry that basically all I'm doing is the same article over and over again just with different vehicles. Yeah, there is, and, and as you well know, also just the format um, of articles and books over the years has changed so much because it used to be much more of a a narrative of of the build and, and well the build itself it used to be a big chunk of it now it's always focused on basically the finishing and it's photograph two sentence caption photograph two sentence caption which is a much different format than it used to be those more long expressive narratives that we used to be able to or used to do back in the day I still do those. <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. That might be why my books don't sell so well. <laughs> I used to do back in the day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I know what you mean, though, because particularly with the the Spanish publications, that's very much what they're about. They're they're far more visual, and they want far less text. They just want you to sort of show what's being done, like you say, two sentence captioned, and that's it. And it, from their point of view. I can understand it as well because it's probably easier to localize the the format for different languages as well. They just translate the captions. That's it. Job done. Yeah. They don't have to. If a language has a lot more words to say the same thing, it's not such a big issue as it would be if you've got 400 words on a page to translate as well and stuff like that. So, Speaking of experience, because I was the editor for the Weathering Magazine for a number of years. And all the articles and whatever text would come to me in either a broken English from whatever native language or their native language. And so, you know, our process, at least then, was it would everything would come to me. I'd put the articles together and generally have to rewrite most of the text or the captions at that point in proper English, send it back to Spain. Um, they would translate to Spanish and then they would send it to some other editors like in Poland or Italy or wherever it might be to translate the English into whatever that native language was. So yeah, it was quite the process. Short, short is better. Yeah. Short is better. I was, I was quite familiar with that because I had a couple of contributors at, um, when I edited scale aircraft modeling that would send it in in their own language because the broken English was so bad. I just used to say, look, just don't worry about it. You know, it's obviously difficult for them. Just send it in your own language. And then I literally put it in Google Translate to turn it into sort of English. And then I'd spend quite a lot of time turning it into actual English. Uh, and there's sometimes a bit of to and fro, What you know, when there's a technical word that Google Translate doesn't know and it translates it into some weird idiom that you think that's fucking gobbledygook. But basically it worked pretty well. Yeah, it was just that's long-winded. basically what I would do quite a bit of time too. And then hopefully I was... You know, I would try to, I'm sure as you did too, try to put like their voice into it. So not every caption, yeah. you know, through every article was exactly the same. So it's like, you know, Google Translate kind of gives you a hint as to how they speak, their sentence structure and yeah. things like that. So I try to keep that in as I would move through their articles. Talking of, of, of books and going back to the controversial things we were talking about earlier, you did a, a really good uh, diorama about the Rwanda genocide for AK's condemnation book. Yes. Some kind of monster. Now, can you just describe, uh, since we're on an audio podcast, can you describe the diorama for listeners? We'll put a photo up with the show notes. 
so the scene itself uh, shows basically a, a trench, a dug trench where there's, I don't know what there is, maybe 12, 15 bodies that have been wrapped up in body bags or blankets at the bottom of the trench. And then um, along the side is a, a, a gentleman with just a spade who's kind of taking a, a rest as he's obviously working to cover the bodies. So, you know, he's come across the scene and his task is to cover these slaughtered people basically during the genocide. And then just up the slope from him is a young child, maybe his son or maybe a boy that of one of the victims in that trench. The way uh, AK works, sometimes they ask you to ask people to make something specifically for the book. And sometimes they know a piece is coming along and they say, well, that would be good for this book. Did you have the idea before or did AK ask you to do something? So this one was, it was prompted. Let's put it that way. So Fernando, who is head of AK, he'd had in his mind to do a publication that was going to be about uh, what he called provocative subjects. So kind of as we we're discussing before subjects that would move the modeling world a little bit into the to that side of the direction you know create some buzz some some um, controversy in a good way some retrospect some thought um, I told him at that time that and he had he had asked if he could use burden of sorrow and of course I said yes and he said well I'd like you to also do a new piece for the magazine or for the book and I just said you know I don't know if I can do that because burden of sorrow came about as we talked about earlier, um, through its own morphous and, you know, to, to try to force something like that. I just said, I don't know if I could do that because it was a special time, special place for that first one. So he kept saying, you know, let's, let's give it a shot. Let's try it. Let's do this. And that lasted for literally about a year, um, that he would say from time to time, Hey, Rick, how are you doing with that project? And I would say, Hey, Fernando, I don't feel it. I'm not going to do it. <laughs> and he would come back and say, Hey, I'd really like you to do that. And I would say, Hey, I don't feel it. Uh, so finally we get to a point, like I, like I said, about a year later. And he said, well, this book is going to happen. And I'd really like to have your contribution, a new piece from you. And we had that same back and forth. And he said, how about if we do something around Rwanda, the genocide in Rwanda? And I didn't, you know, I knew of it, but I wasn't really versed into it or anything like that. So he sent me some photographs of kind of where his mind was in terms of concept and things like that. And says, what if you did a scene such as this? Now, the scenes that he, he presented to me, the photographs, they were of like, front end loaders like you know john deere's and hitachi's or you know big you know, construction equipment basically scooping up bodies and clearing land that had been you know people have been basically slaughtered in and putting them into ditches much the same as you know you would see those holocaust videos at the end of world war ii and i said okay uh, i'll do something and i started actually down that exact path of what he the photographs laid out. So I actually built a loader. Um, it's a Hasegawa, a little front end loader. And once I got that finished, I started trying to conceptualize what the scene would look like. Cause I still didn't have it in my head what this is going to look like when I got done with it. 
And it was at that point, I'm going like, this is just not going to work. Um, at least this concept is not going to work, at least for me. Um, I need to figure this out, something different. The loader was too large, which created the scene that was going to be, the base was going to be too large. I was going to lose all the emotional impact of what this was going to happen. It was going to easily slip into that. It's too um, grotesque, you know, just all these bodies, that kind of stuff. And I thought, I, I need I need to recalibrate this. So that led to what it ended up being, which was take the mechanical part out of this, which was had this this fellow who you know, happens to have the task of having to bury these bodies and he's just got his spade and he's just like basically standing there in the scene, taking a break or reflecting on what he's doing, his this terrible task that he has to do. And then this small child that's above him who is either like I mentioned, either his son who's there just to help or maybe he's a child of one of the victims that's in this trench. And and that brought it back down to a very much more emotional and personal level that I think uh, a viewer could empathize with. They also kind of touches back to what can be accomplished by implying something that, that the viewer will understand without being overt, right? If you've got a ditch full of body-shaped bags and body-shaped blankets lined up in a row like your mind understands what it's looking at without yeah without having to see mutilated bodies and and all the stuff that was in the photos yeah the horrors there without the well you know um, what the horror is grotesqueness you've seen it you know it's it's one of the things that like we were talking about why modelers don't portray the horrors of war very often i mean i feel like most modelers, um, if they're building military subjects, enjoy watching documentaries. You know, and I watch them all the time while I'm having lunch and things like that. And you know, a, a buddy of mine, he was like, "Why are you watching it? You know how it ends." And I was like, "Yeah, I do. I know how World War II ends." <laughs> That's not really the point. Like, I enjoy like I pick up on like how how the troops are actually dressed in terms of what kind of equipment they're carrying when they're actually fighting and settings for future dioramas and like what the weather was like, what the groundwork was like. But also I'm just fascinated by world war two. You could tell me world war two stories all day long and I'd sit there and be like, Oh, this is great. But there's something different about watching a world war two movie, a Hollywood movie where people die versus watching an actual documentary where somebody was right there filming it. And suddenly one of the people in that, frame just drops to the ground like you just watch somebody get killed like we all see that and when we're watching these dioramas we all see the wing shear off of a b-17 and it starts tumbling down to the ground and no parachutes coming out like you see death you know what death looks like you don't you kind of don't have to portray it or i think a lot of people kind of shy away from portraying it because it there's an emotional impact. Even if you're just watching a documentary while you're eating your lunch, when that guy gets shot and hits the ground, like you feel it. Like you feel something like, fuck, that's a human being that just died. But you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, whatever it was like, but you just watch somebody die. And I think for a lot of people, that's, 
that's the part of whatever military history they're interested in that they can't bring themselves to revisit a lot. You know? So I think I, I think a lot of military modeling is just like this is a cool vehicle, you know? Like there's a we all understand what the vehicle did and, and that the people in it killed people and the people in it also probably died. Um, so if you're going to go to the, if your concept involves showing any kind of death or the consequences of war, the horrors of war, you can, you can, let's say again, it's better to be uh, selective and, and imply because you don't have to imply a lot before people understand because we already understand. It's just, it takes a skill and sensitivity to model that effectively that most people don't even want to attempt and who can blame them really. I mean, if you're not good at it, it just comes off really poorly. Yeah. I think for a lot of people, it's better not to do it than to do it badly. Yeah. Speaking of which the book Seems to have had very, uh, I think, very laudable aims of trying to do what we're talking about, of doing it and doing it well. But it wasn't received very well. Why do you think that was? Well, I, I think it came down to uh, just the initial marketing campaign. It was certainly off the mark. Um, so <laughs> I, as a contributor, you know, I sent in my articles and again, this this project had been going on for for quite some time. I had no idea of the, when the release date was going to be. And I wake up in the morning and I check my emails and my Facebook and whatever, and it's jam packed with a bunch of people who are very very angry at me. <laughs> and and wishing that wishing not very good things. Which is I'm like, what the heck just happened? You know. So I didn't even know it was been released. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. I finally did see um, the clips. There was, I think, one initially. I think another one came out either a few hours or the next day. And I, I, I was taken aback by, you know, personally, I was taken aback by the the clips and and the marketing because I understanding what the intention of the book was supposed to be, which was to ask these questions and to kind of push modeling in, in that, like I said, a provocative direction showing um, the, not the greatest sides of life um, and humanity. What it came across as was a Freddy Krueger's sort of horror story um, promo because there was splatters of blood. There was red backgrounds. There was, you know, a bunch of barbed wire crosses here and there. And, and it just, it literally was a horror movie promo versus a promotion for provocative works of art. And, and of course the subjects inside were, were, were difficult by intention. And so you put those two overlapping each other and, um, yeah, it took, it took quite a hit. Um, I contacted Fernando I think the next day, and I said, listen, I, I don't know what, I understand what you're trying to do here, but you totally missed the mark on the marketing here. This is this is absolutely backfiring. You probably know that by now. So I ended up doing a rewrite of the entire book for him, 
for them. Um, over the next couple of weeks, they, they, they pulled it. They pulled the marketing for sure. I don't know if they pulled the book, but they pulled, they, they basically, I got the book and he says, okay, Rick, go through it. And you take out everything that you think is controversial, rewrite, especially the introductions because AK had um, written introductions to most of the chapters. Um, so even my work had a new introduction to it. So I rewrote all those and because they were much more aggrandized in terms of the horror and the whatever. And so I sent that back and then they came out with a second edition or a new release um, a month or so later. They had the changes. Do you know if they'd actually printed any before they went back and changed it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I have the, fir I have the first edition. So I got sent the first edition. I don't have the second edition, yeah. but I do have the first edition. Uh, so it was it was there. Yeah. They must have taken quite a hit on that. I mean, it's not cheap to to print yeah. that. So the fact they went back and changed it is, uh, is to their credit. Really. Yeah. That's really yeah. It also underlines how, you know, you really, like if you're going to broach these subjects in scale modeling, you really have to do so with some uh, sensitivity, you know. Some respect as well. Yeah. I think. Yeah. 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 And... It, it, you know, it, that was an interesting, that, that was certainly interesting, uh, you know, few days to a week right there because that turmoil did not go away very quickly. At least what, you know, it was, it was, it was fast. You know, you, you hear these stories about, you know, teenage girls getting bullied on the internet and such like that. And they do all these things. Mm -hmm. That was the most, that's the closest I've ever felt like, oh my gosh, this is actually a pretty real feeling that you get when people that you know, people that you've had conversations with, other modelers, people you respect and such, are just chastising you for being involved in that project. And I'm like, I had, you know, <laughs> I don't know what to tell you here. I don't think people understand when you work for a lot of companies, including AK, all your contact is what they want from you. You make what they want. You send it in. You don't get to decide what the book looks like. And they don't tell you when it's coming. They don't tell you anything. They might give you a vague idea of when it's coming out. But usually you find out when you get the marketing email that everyone else gets. that it's coming out. It's not like, you know, they consult you all the way. And you are intimately involved with the total direction of the book and all this stuff. It's right. Just, yeah. You know, you do a job. You give them the stuff. They give you money. That's yeah. how it works. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Other, otherwise, you could present your article and be like, "Oh, by the way, put it on the cover. Thanks." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the aims of the book were laudable, and in a way, it's a shame that it it got mishandled and that it did because I think it is important that modelling covers these things and and you know and uh, goes beyond the usual kind of tank on a plank and and stuff and tries to ask the audience questions. Yeah, there's there's some good pieces in there in both editions actually. And including, and this is somebody that can be a very much part of this conversation that we're having, is Pete Usher, his little yeah. boy sitting on top of those um, trash bags, is is part of the addendum of that book or the gallery in the back of that book, which is a mm. fantastic piece that, once again, communicates a very strong message with very simple, you know, one one small figure and a bunch of trash bags, and it really conveys what the message is. Um, and of course, Pete has done some great work. That elephant he did with the 
tusk um, that was there at World Model Expo the, and such. Um, yeah, the Maasai warrior. The, yeah. Uh, um, Profit and loss. Yeah, exactly. Profit and loss, yes. Yeah. yeah. He has a very deep understanding of, of diorama and aesthetics and, and you know, a composer composition and everything he's, he's a it's, very i think he's got a very cinematic eye yeah like, I, I think he's he's able to compose images and things like that but one of the things that i wanted to ask about the the ak book and i'm asking both of you guys just because i'm mm. curious what your take on this would it have been either would it have been received better or would it have been financially more successful to include uh instead of doing an entire volume dedicated to that, to include uh, a, a diorama in a series of books, like spread those dioramas over a series of, of books rather than, because my instinct is if you're, if you release a book like that, there's a limited audience for it. Like there are a limited amount of people who are going to be like, I'm going to buy that. And pay good money and put it on my shelf and pull it down and flip through it. But if you put an article like that in each one of your books for the, you know, if it's like the weathering magazine or whatever, it's a, a themed thing, then financially, do you think you'd sell more of those books? And would those articles have the same impact broken up into a series rather than one volume? Uh, Chris could probably talk to the financials and publication side better than me. I, my, my feeling about it is, is that putting it into one book, let's take the converse converse here. If that had been successful, if that book had come out of the gate and people just loved it, loved the content, then we, this conversation would be totally different, right? That would be a, 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 a coffee table book that people would be looking through, thumbing through and proud to display on their, their thing because it has some great work in it that makes you think. Okay. The second part of this is it was, I believe during this time that this is kind of the business side of things during this time that um, AK was starting to put together their museum that they have there on premises. So, and I don't know this for a fact, but I'm pretty sure that there was going to be a tie-in between the pieces in that book, the book itself, and a display of thought-provoking pieces within the museum itself. So that would be its own area of there as well. So I think there was a tie-in on the backside. So keeping them together and condensed was a, a marketing move, a, a planned move, in my opinion. So both of those pieces, so Burden of Sorrow and uh, Some Kind of Monster are both back at the AK Museum right now in Spain. So I don't know if, I know Pete's Ushers is not there, but I don't know how many of those other pieces that were in the book are there. I mean, from the financials point of view, we don't actually know how it sold. It could have made AK a ton of money for all I know, because sensationalism does actually sell. Um I kind of feel like, though, the, for me, the book failed in two ways. There was the, the marketing was a bad idea, but also, I don't think the how-to format was suitable for that book. And 
one of the big things I know that people responded badly to, and I did, was I don't really want to read about how to make my own gas chamber with AK paint references for the colours of the tiles. Um, the piece was good, but the the for the the kind of the yeah the format of the article didn't just jarred with what it was. I think it would have been better as an art book with limited information on how it was made and maybe more about the author's thought processes and how they tried to handle it sensitively and how they tried to do it properly and just treat it far more seriously as an art book. And because of that, I don't think it would fit in the Weathering magazine because the Weathering magazine is a how-to magazine. It's a technique magazine. And the, the general AK books are technique book. And I think that's how they ended up making that mistake because they made the same kind of book they make for everything else a technique book and that's what they do works really well sells really well but just in this one instance i don't think it really fit but that's just you know hindsight's 2020 and if i was that great at editing books and coming up with books then uh you know <laughs> i wouldn't be talking to you lot right now i'd be off talking to my hundred employees about them the books so you'd be busy at the inside the armor museum yeah yeah, and frankly, AK is a very successful company. So. Yeah, I think I think those are really good points, Chris. Um, I think he really hit a lot of nails on the head on on that analysis. I actually feel bad about it because I really wish a book like that had come out and been really successful. Because I think it is important to tackle these things. Well, someday, maybe uh, inside the armor can put out a book like that someday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's, let's uh, face it, Chris. Uh, you're you're not shy around controversial or or political subjects yourself. I mean, you've been working out with this Ukraine no. stuff and and putting out your own books, and mm. I'm sure you've had some of these exact same conversations and dilemmas in your own world. I've not actually had a lot of pushback on it. A little bit. A lot of people saying, "Why aren't you doing a book for Syria?" Because like, well, feel free to do one. I'll buy it. You know. Um, but I haven't had that much uh, controversy over it. I'll be honest. But it might be as well because I'm a smaller person, and you know, the the bigger the you know, the tall poppies get knocked down. You know, when you're a big company and you try and do something and it doesn't quite hit right, you get a lot more criticism because you're a big company. And I feel bad for them on that, really. But uh, lessons learned, I guess. At the end of yeah. the day, they seem to have survived. Yeah, they're doing okay. I think, I think they're doing fine. <laughs> yeah, they're doing really good. Yeah, and I'm, I'm certainly not going to criticise them because they pay pay my uh, wages at one point as well. Oh, so. Yeah, there you go. You've got your scratch build book that just came out as well through them. So, and congratulations. Yeah, I on like that. their paints a lot. Yeah, I like the paints a lot, actually. I think the third gen acrylics are absolutely fantastic. Yeah. Really I think phenomenal. the real colours are great, too. Yeah. Yeah, I've not really tried them. I need oh, to. you need to. They're, yeah, they're absolutely should. fantastic. Yeah, they're really great. And of course, now they're moving to kits as well. Yeah. Big step for any company to move into to, uh, injection mold. Yeah. And and so far, some pretty pretty good hits with those. I mean, I like what they're doing there in terms of, you know, it, it fits my niche that I like to model in, which is not the popular subject. You know, no Tigers, no Shermans, no none of this. I'm always looking for yeah. cars and trucks and offbeat little this and that's and you know so these little suvs and everything else that they're coming out with are just absolutely fantastic the unimogs and stuff and out of the gate as well really high quality stuff you know i mean usually a new company has a few duds yeah 
but everything I've heard has been really good. Yeah. And Pete's doing a good job at designing a lot of that stuff. So that's really nice. It's also getting harder and harder to say that you model in each subject when, when, (laughs) with the rate these kits are coming out. I mean, there was, there was a time when I was like really fascinated by World War One armored cars because there was so, there weren't very many kits. They were big lumps of resin you had to track down on eBay, you know, that would take you a couple of years to find. And now between Copper State and Mini Art, there's, you know, there's uh, injection molded kits of just about every World War One interwar armored car there was. You know? <laughs> Since the invention of the automobile was just a few years earlier, there's only so many that you can do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although somehow still they're like, oh, I didn't know about that yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, there's there's still quite a lot. I mean, it's basically every every decent uh, frame of a, a car or truck was turned into something uh, initially. Yeah. So. Um, and yeah, they're all really cool, but it's it's hard to keep up with uh, with building that stuff. You know, by the time you're like, oh yeah, that that looks really good. I should buy that. And then there's like ten people who've done a really good job on it. And you're like, well, fuck it. Like, mm-hmm. it's it's you know, these people have already gotten the best out of it. I don't know that I'm going to do much better. So maybe I'll move on to something else. I have that absolute same thought all the time. It's like, you know, that's part of the actually. I, sh- I should bring this back a little bit. Actually, I have a King Tiger. It's one seventy second scale sitting right there, um, and it's the first Tiger tank I've ever built in my life because of just that reason. Is one, I'm no Tiger expert. I'm no Sam Dwyer and something like that. Who knows my Tigers and my Panthers? And secondly, the hallmark pieces are already out there. I have nothing to add to this conversation. There's nothing I can do. Yeah. So. What can I say that? Yeah. Said. So, but I'm just doing this because it's 172nd and it's fast and easy and it's something to fiddle with. And I haven't done 172nd before either. So that will be an upcoming video. How'd you pick subjects? Uh, just whatever my fancy is most of the time. I don't have a stash. So as I'm winding down a project, I will. I. 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 I haven't. No. I. I, I can't see anything. I can't see anything behind you, Chris. There's. There's, there's nothing, nothing there. there. Nothing. There's nothing, nothing to there. see. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah there that's you much go. Nothing to see. <laughs> no. So as I'm winding down a project, I'll just start kind of. Sometimes you know, it'll hit me as in the middle of like, oh, I think I'd like to see this, or a new release might come out, and I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. I'll give that a shot, or, you know, um, for a period of time early in the filming process, early in the channel process i was still doing a lot of magazine work so many of those builds end up in books and magazines for ak so they're filling two roles um less so now but um you know it's just really what hits my fancy and then getting on these little modeling chat rooms and such um that's where these buddy builds are starting to come from like the star wars a-wing and things like that and it's like well, i've never done a star wars before but these guys are talking me into it so yeah, let's do this so just really whatever hits my fancy, but I don't have a stash. I don't look at it. I don't, that's just not there. It's whatever's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm following a little shiny object around whatever the next one might be. Well, it's funny as, as many recordings as we've done. And again, for everybody listening, it's an audio recording, but for us, it's a video recording. So for, what almost two years I've been looking at Chris's stash behind him. And it hasn't changed. It really hasn't, but there's that <laughs> there's that about any of the fucking things. <laughs> well the problem is that I can't really I can't tell what most of them are. They're not very yeah. clear, except the one sixteenth TACOM 
uh, Renault FT17, which is right above your head, directly above your head. It's been there for two years, which leads me to the question, are you interested in tackling 116 scale? Who, me or Rick? It's your kids. Rick. <laughs> yeah. No. Well, you want me to send it I to already built. I've already built one of those. In 16 scale? You can you can build it. Yeah. You've already done a 116 scale FD17? Yeah. Oh, shit. Yeah, look back. I got to go back and look, look that look up. Look back on my videos. It's like a four-part series. Huh. That was quite an old... It's, it's about a year ago. Uh, I was selling them at, at um, Euro Militaire, so... Oh, about a year ago. I was going to say, yeah, that kit's about five years the, old. The Tackham kit? Old. Yeah. Yeah. Did you enjoy 116th? I started out enjoying 116th. Uh, I got really... So, I well, actually, I built it after World Model Expo because I was sitting there talking to Spud Murphy and his thing, and he had his steward there at that time. And yeah, he did. And he got me all excited and jazzed up about doing 116th and everything. And so that's why that that started. And I I, I kind of lost gas partway through. It's got an interior on it as well, which takes more time. It's just big. I mean, that, that's just it. It's just big and it takes time. And especially because it was part of a video um, routine that, you know, having to have material every week at that time because i was for two years i put out a video every week so there was that's that's a lot of material a lot of building it's a treadmill isn't it the yeah it is and and so i felt that pressure and because the kid is so big it just takes so much more time to do whatever it is you're going to do and that part started to kind of kill my mojo as well but i did enjoy it and it's not like i wouldn't do another one again um, actually, that machining Krieger was very similar experience, not to the same degree, but its size is is fairly large. Yes, yeah, one of the yeah, bigger it's ones. It's fairly isn't large it? yeah. too. So once you get into the, especially the weathering part, that really slows you down. Are you, uh, if you hadn't been doing it for a video, are you the type of modeler who would have gotten to a point and just been like, yeah, no, I'm not into this anymore, and just moved on to the next thing, or or would you have pushed through? No, I've never not. St- finished a model in my entire life. Yeah. Um, one model at a time, always finish. <laughs> look at that guilty look on Chris's face. I Periodically, I, I don't have much of a shelf of shame. The reason is periodically I throw some out. So you don't have to look at them anymore? Yeah. Well, I just figure I'm never going to finish it. It's just taking up room and making me feel guilty. I don't need that negativity in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if you ever get to that point with that Renault D D one, yeah, just put it in a box and mail it to me. Well, I will do because I started painting it and I got bored. I just couldn't. I, this is a classic. I don't know if you ever get this, Rick. Um, I scratch bought it for the book, and that was the purpose for it. So once it was done, it was done. But then I thought, well, I, I should paint it, and I started painting it, but without really thinking about what I wanted it to look like when it was finished. And because I didn't have a vision for it, I just ran out of mm-hmm. steam. I have to have a vision for a project, really, before I start it. And then I, I know exactly what I'm doing, where I'm going. And I might change it on the way, but at least it's a goal that I'm aiming for. If I don't have a defined goal, I find it very hard to push And that's through. the one you scratch built, right, we're talking about? Yeah. See, I would have yeah. just put that on my shelf as it was and not even worried about it. You know, just, just in a raw form. Well, for instance, Chris... It's been yeah. like that. <laughs> it's got camouflage well, let's now. Paint it white again. You can strip all the paint off yeah, of it. Yeah, let's paint it styrene white again, you know, and call it good. But, you know, uh, 
you and I talked when I was I built that little cell phone tower here after your book came out. Yeah, yeah. Um, I never did paint that. I put it on a little base. I and it's actually I made a little wall hanging out of this thing. So it's a little base that is just sticking to the wall and it's next to my facades and everything else in the naked white on this you know scenic base. I, you know, I think we've all been to those had those projects where we do a lot of work on the on the model at a lot of extra our aftermarket so photo etch and resin or whatever the case may be and you get those comments like oh i wouldn't paint that if i were you because it looks so cool and you can't can't see the work now i've never left one like that but i think that's a, another approach you know especially you chris that's you know mr scratch build dude and you could just for me though it's not a model unless it's painted and finished <sighs> Yeah, but once it's an incomplete you, uh, model. I, I get that, but also I think if you put that kind of work into it and you've added, corrected, and you've done so much work to it, once you put primer on it, it just looks like a kid out of the box to anybody looking at it. Like it yeah, but also I know that the a big part of, of really good scratch building, not just sort of, you know, Facebook impressive scratch building, is how well you do it and how clean you leave it so that when paint goes on you can't see sanding marks and scratches and burrs and all sorts of other stuff so you know i want to test myself properly so you paint it and you find out mm. that's a good point yeah it's fair enough yeah okay point to chris he wins <laughs> <laughs> i win on that bombshell <laughs> he says with a with a uh it's just got base coats on it and he hasn't done anything else with it so i lose frankly i should have just covered it in clear um, lacquer and put it in the shelf and forgot about it. Yeah, because that's the other thing. White plastic goes. I was going to say, and let it turn time, yellow over I, time. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I have got one white model. I built a model of my own house. Oh, and uh, I need to finish that, and then I'll spray that white. But that's an architectural model. They look right white, yeah. don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They can for sure. Yeah, it's about the only model that the rest of the family likes as well. <laughs> <laughs> Which you reminded me when uh, you said that you throw away, you know, your shelf queens or whatever you're not going to mm-hmm. do. It's like I, I, I end up throwing away almost my almost all my finished models. You know, it's like it's yeah, like I they sit on a, they go through a rotation. You know, it's like if I really like it, it will go and I have a glass, you know, a case sort of thing, and you know I'll put it in there. But that means it's full, so that means something has to come out. And then that will go on to this other shelf over here that's just exposed. And then over time, they get dusty and broken. And then, you know, pretty soon it just goes into the dumpster. <laughs> and people hear me say that and they just go like, oh, my God, Rick, I can't believe you would do that. I mean, I've said this on this podcast so many times, people will be bored of hearing it. But for me, the fun's in making it. And once I'm finished, I just lose all interest. Yeah, frankly. I do too. I don't. I, I have no models displayed. Well, I should take that back. That Luna Camel is actually displayed in a living space, um, but everything else, I don't, I, I don't look at them again. Matt, I don't look at my videos again after they're published. I, it's just like they're done. Um, and part of the reason I keep my website is just because my, a lot of my older work. I haven't even updated it for the longest time, but a lot of my older work and photographs is sitting in the on the website on my propaganda website. So that's all I need is my photographs. You know, I, if I get, you know, get the urge to look at something, you know, I'll, I'll just look at my photographs. That's, that's fine. I don't need no model. Yeah. Sometimes I go back and look at my stuff and I'm like, mm, could have done better. Like I, I look at it and I'm like, I could do better now. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, as long as you still think that, you're going in the right direction. When you look at it and you think, oh, shit, how did I do that? I don't think I could do that now. <laughs> I've, had that, I've had that experience. It's like, man, I used to yeah. really pay attention to this stuff. Now I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, All right, we kept you a very long time, Rick. Um, thank you for, for putting up with the technical outages and all sorts of other problems. Um Thank you for joining us on the Spree Cousin. Oh, you're very yeah, welcome, you. guys. This has been a lot of fun. I've enjoyed it. Hey, everyone. I'd just like to take a moment to thank all our patrons. These guys support us month in, month out, and we really do appreciate all your support. The show is relatively expensive to produce in terms of hosting equipment and everything else and takes up a huge amount of my time to edit and a huge amount of the guys' time to record. So we really do appreciate you helping us out with that. If you'd like to become a patron, go to patreon.com slash union today to find out how you can support the show. For as little as $1 a month, you can help us keep this show on the road. Now, back to the show. Hey, Spruikers, don't forget there are a bunch of other great modelling podcasts that you could be listening to, including Just Making Conversation, Small Subjects, the Plastic Posse Podcast, MMP, Model Bugger Podden, Model Geeks, Plastic Model Mojo, On the Bench, Scale Model Podcast, Built Sideways, and my own Models from Ukraine podcast. So head on over to modelpodcasts.com, the site that lists all of the model podcasts so that you can find some other great model content to listen to. So what did you guys think of that interview? Will? I thought it was great. I mean, Rick is just, you know, such a cool guy and such a great talent. And just, you know, he has got, he's always got a lot of, of great insight and uh, always a pleasure to get to hang out with him. I like the fact that for the, at least the first time in recent memory, we talked to somebody that we all knew beforehand. Yeah, I I think uh, with yeah. most of our interviews, like you know, we'll we'll be like, oh, I really want to talk to this person, and maybe one of the other people is like, yeah, me too. <clears throat> and this might be the first time where we've actually talked to somebody that we all knew uh, pretty well beforehand. So, you know, I think because of that, we could kind of miss out on all that usual. Tell us how you got started yeah. modeling, and tell us about yourself, and we could just get right into the meat of it. Yeah, yeah, and I mean it's it's nice to have him back on. I mean, we did have a brief conversation with him at World Model Expo a few years back, so um and it was great hanging out with him in real life there. So it was it was nice to have him back. Um and it was it was pretty interesting to talk to somebody who um who builds models on a schedule the way he does, um and keeps kind mm -hmm. of the quality and kind of like keeps pushing himself. Um that's really cool, and I don't know that I would be, uh, it, I would be uh, as successful doing it as he was. You know, he's really turned it up on the YouTube side over the last year, and mm -hmm. that that takes time and takes discipline, <laughs> more discipline than I've got, obviously. And uh, you know, he's he's really cranking out a lot of high quality content on a pretty regular schedule. I like the fact he's very thoughtful about what he does as well. I mean, sometimes it's just a model and it's just about the techniques and everything else. But, you know, sometimes 
he's a pretty deep guy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and he, he definitely, you know, he, he kind of underlines the fact that, you know, sometimes it is just a model, but other times, like, there's something that really grabs him that he goes really deep and really hard on. So it's, uh, it's I think for a lot of people, it's a nice to hear that where you're like, where you don't feel like you have to be on all the time, where you don't have to, to feel like yeah. you're, you're like reaching for the stars every time you sit down at the bench. Like when you're inspired, sure, man, go for it. Follow, follow that inspiration. But, you know, sitting down and building a model is so enjoyable. Like it, it's its own reward, you know? Hmm. He's just well, ba- he's, a, he's just a well-balanced human being. I mean, you know, he, he takes it seriously when it's time to take it seriously. But as I've told on previous episodes, he's not above a shenanigan when it's time for that, too. <laughs> he's a fun guy, yeah. for sure. Yeah. All right. So uh, this is our last episode for 2023. Uh, we're going to off to play with our jingle bells. Uh, and we will see you in 2024. Now, we've got a couple of guests lined up for that. But uh, is it too early to say who it is? No, we can go ahead and drop it. Man. All right, then. Who have we got coming up in 2024? Well, I am hoping I've been working on getting the uh, world-famous Clay Williams. Um, he's a really a world-class talent when it comes to aircraft modeling, and his specialty has always kind of been World War One stuff. But he recently did a, a 148th, uh, Lysander, which I mm. think is a very cool and a very pretty airplane, actually. Um, and is Hancock's chicken is that compare it to that you one know, where they stuck a twin tail on it and a turret, and it's very pretty. Yeah, yeah. There's always some. <laughs> yeah, there are uglier aircraft out there, but <laughs> certainly you have to admit to that. But at any rate, his is beautiful. It's a beautiful yeah. model. He did a beautiful job. Um, and so, yeah, uh, hoping to get that lined up. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, and I've been talking to, for actually quite a while now, um, to Chris Jarrett about getting him on. And it looks like his schedule uh, is, is kind of – his schedule frees up a, a good bit in the colder months. So, um I am got my fingers crossed. Uh, he he's willing, and if everything works out, we'll have him on uh, very early in twenty twenty four as well. Brilliant. Well, I hope everyone out there in Listerlands gets everything they want for Christmas. Uh, thank you very much for listening to the Sprue Cutters Union this year, and see you soon. Adios, bitches. Hasta luego. <laughs> <laughs>